Hello, hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from freedomainradio.com slash donate. Yeah, see, I slipped that one in. Please come and help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. We need your help and we need your support more than ever before. Thank you so much for everything that you can do to help spread this conversation. Callers tonight. The first was a man who was jealous of his girlfriend and in particular of the men she'd slept with before they got together. Was it fair? Was it just? Why did it keep replaying in his mind's eye? We went into the details there and into his own history as well. The second caller wanted to know, what does femininity mean today in the 21st century? What does masculinity mean? And how have these definitions been influenced by movements like feminism? And has it been positive or negative? We had a great conversation about men and women, masculinity and femininity, and really, really enjoyed that one. The third caller wanted to start a business and be a business person, but also be a political activist for reason and freedom. Is that possible to combine? Can you do that together? And we talked about sort of the forks in the road, the decisions you have to make and where priorities might be rationally organized with these kinds of decisions. Now, the fourth caller was entirely convinced that I was entirely wrong about the question of God. And he set up to school me in no uncertain terms. You will be very surprised at how the conversation went, but it's well, well worth listening to, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I know I did. This is again Stefan Molyneux for Free Domain Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for supporting. Please enjoy the show. All right. Up first today, we have Peter. Peter wrote in and said, Every now and then I catch myself thinking about my girlfriends according to modern standards not that extensive sexual past. Before me, she had a three and a half year relationship starting at age 17 and three more casual flings. She shows all the characteristics of a genuinely loving, self-conscious female creature. Up to what point should I let myself be bothered inside every time I remember and get an image of her having a good time with men that, I would imagine, don't really care about her? Do I justify it with the fact that a higher number of partners generally has a negative effect on her? Or should I focus more on what she's actually showing me for the last nine months, not let all these images influence me, and realize that it's actually me, perhaps, having a problem here? I'm really hoping for a response as I don't want unhealthy obsessions to ruin an otherwise healthy and virtuous relationship. That's from Peter. Hey, Peter. Hello. Hi. Have you, uh, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't have, I'm just curious, have you talked to her about this? Uh, yeah, we've had uh, one, two, two conversations about it, I believe. Right. Yeah. And how have they gone? Uh, not that well. Not that well? She got mad, sad, uh, uh, well, not an overall positive experience, but... Did not, it did not go well? It did not go well, no. Okay. And how many uh, girlfriends have you had? I've had, uh, well, let's say she's the third one, but it's the first proper relationship. So she's had one proper relationship, and this is, for you, with her, your first proper relationship? Correct. So she's, she's one, one ahead of you, right? Uh, let's say so, yeah. And she's had... Um, Four, oh, she slept with four men, is that right? You said one long relationship and then three more casual flings? Correct, yeah. So uh, how many women have you slept with? Uh, eight. She's the eighth one. Sure, she's done four, you've done eight, right? Uh, well, it's five with me, yeah, in her case. 
Okay, sorry, you're right, you're right. Five, yeah, you should count. I, okay, you're right. Uh, so you've done eight, she's done five. And is she, would you say that, is she about the same level of physical attractiveness as you or more or less? Yeah, I'd say we're both about, uh, I don't know, 8.5 or so. <laughs> I can't say eight. Maybe I could say nine, but you know, it's it's kind of subjective. I would say 8.5. Wait, nine for who? For both about the for both of you, okay. Yeah. And do you have uh, any uh, experience when you were younger, uh, in in among family or friends or anything like that, a <clears throat> female infidelity? No, no, absolutely not. No. Absolutely. Uh, you not. mean uh, does it have to be within family? Does it have to be within uh, the relationship of, of my parents, for example? No. Or can it be? That's why I said among friends. Uh, no. I've had. Uh, I've been cheated on. Once, but uh, that's it. And what's my, my the story with that? Uh, nothing. Uh, a relationship that ended, that well ended up to be quite superficial, and uh, in the fifth month or so, yeah, she just you know wrote a long uh, message on on Facebook. Uh, like, well, I got to know this cheat on me like a month after from another person, but yeah, well, nothing. Just. Uh, no, nothing special, you know, nothing worth mentioning. Or if nothing you worth mentioning. All right. If you, if you, what uh, specific details do you need? Do you want? No, no. Listen, I'm going to go with your call. I mean, if you say it's nothing worth mentioning, I'm not going to disagree with you. It seems to me that it would be, but no, I'm I mean, going to go like, with uh, with what you uh, with what you I, I, say. I, was, I mean, I'm you know, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I was young. I was a fool. I got in love, fell in love, and uh, that's it. Got cheated on. Well, which is not weird. I got. I knew like two months before she slept like with twenty. 20 plus men, maybe 30. 20 or 30? Yeah, 25, 30, something like that. And how often a day does this, uh, or how often a week or whatever, does this, do these thoughts um, intrude upon you or or bother you? Yeah. Uh, Now less, I'll have to admit, I'll have to say. In the last two, three weeks less, I just uh, decided sort of not to uh, have an emotional influence on me. Well, let's say... uh, uh, I don't know, once in uh, two days? Once in three days? In two, in two. Once every two days. As, as, and in, so a more, the, as in a more serious case, so like uh, I get all all uh, mad about it and I don't know. Okay, but so what, what do you get mad about? What, what are your thoughts? What are the thoughts that lead to you getting angry? Because anger usually is a story we tell ourselves. And that doesn't mean the story is false and it doesn't mean that we never have objective reasons to be angry. But usually... Anger is a story we tell ourselves. Um, like, you know, you've probably heard about these these riots that went on in Ferguson and Charlotte and other places. And there are stories that crank people up and get them angry about stuff. Um, and, you know, we have a story in society called, you know, things should be equal uh, between ethnicities, between genders, between rich. And, I mean, and, and when they're not, we get we get angry. Right. So. So you have a, probably, you have a story that you tell yourself that makes you angry. And if you do, I'm not saying you do, but if you do, do you know what that story is? What, what language you use to get angry? From my past, or uh, what I say to myself when I get that emotion, you mean? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not sure it's, um, whether I can identify it as anger. It can be maybe a sort of anxiety just uh, an uh, uneasiness in a way, not a physical one, just, uh, you know, as if... Anxiety uh, or insecurity or, right? 
So let's say so. Okay, yeah. so so I, 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 my there's something that just about her for a moment, you know. But yeah, you know, so there's the something that you say. Hang on, there's something you probably say to yourself, Peter. It may be unconscious, right? It may may be something deep down in your guts. But there's something that happens that produces that anxiety, right? And if you know what that is, then you can evaluate it. And if it's valid, then it's something you need to act on. And if it's invalid, you can you can challenge yourself on it, right? Yeah. Okay, so do you have any idea what you might be saying to yourself that makes you anxious about your girlfriend's uh, history? To be honest, uh, not really. I, I, I don't know how to put it into words. Uh... Well, the, the, okay, so not really means somewhat. I don't know how to put it into words means you have an idea, but you don't know how to express it. Is that right? Uh, no, I just, I just know the emotion. I don't know how to, how to put it into words. Um, let me see. Okay. Well, you love this woman, right? Yeah. So my guess would be that you feel that you may not positively compare to her past boyfriends, right? Maybe you compare negatively. Maybe she's thinking of them when she has sex with you. Maybe, I'm not trying to make you paranoid, right? I'm not trying to Iago you up here. I'm just saying that these are possibilities that sort of spring to my mind. Or maybe you feel that she could do better than you, or maybe you feel that she has uh, uh, alternatives or options in the future that she might choose that's different from you. Maybe you feel like you don't have a way of keeping her your girlfriend. And then what that means, of course, is that the more the more you love her, the more anxious you're going to feel because love is vulnerability, right? When you when you love someone, when you love something, uh, whether it's a person, whether it's an ideal, whether it's freedom, whether it's money, whatever you love makes you vulnerable, which is why love should only be exposed to those we can really trust. So it could be that the more positive you you, you have an experience of her, the more happy she makes you. Well, then if she leaves you or if she finds a better guy or whatever it is, that's really going to kick you in the nads, right? Yep. Uh, I think uh, now that you mention these things, I can uh, maybe say what what uh, what I think of, actually. Um, sure. What pops into my mind is um, I w- I've always had an uh, say uneasiness as well. Yeah, with the with the general condition of this world. When you talk about uh, feminism, when you talk about promiscuity. Um, it, 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 I get involved, I think, emotionally. It's something similar to the case, uh, to the video you made, uh, you have with this uh, lady, uh, how to uh, stay sane in an insane world. Right. Where I get uh, emotionally invested in, 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 in thoughts. So uh, I, I, just, I just maybe try also to kind of, uh, say, romanticize maybe uh, history or Asian history where uh, uh, there was no this... Uh, sexual liberty as it is uh, nowadays that sounds very abstract for what seems to me to be romantic or sexual insecurity it sounds very abstract you know like mm-hmm. past philosophies of of chastity or whatever it seems pretty pretty abstract do you want to peter do you want to get married and have children with this woman perhaps sure Sure. I mean, I wouldn't even enter a relationship if uh, she isn't, hadn't she been uh, a candidate, you know, a good candidate. 
Right. And do you know if she has any thoughts that way herself? Yeah. She Absolutely. does. And, yeah. and she, has she expressed any interest in an abstract sense? I guess it's fairly early on in getting married to and having children with you. Yeah. She has. Yeah. Okay. Right. So are you worried about having children in the Europe that is or the Europe that is to be? Yeah. Honestly, uh, yeah, I'm kind of uh, worried about the kind of uh, place they would or will grow up in. And what are your worries? What do you think? Uh, changes in culture, uh, immigration, uh, sexual, uh, how to say, sexual anarchy that we have today. Uh, all this mainstream influence, social justice warriors, all this. Well, how, what, do you, what, what should I call it? Everything you talk about, in short. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, if you have a girl, she's going to be pumped full of vanity and vulnerability and victimhood. And if you have a boy, he's going to be pumped full of, you know, self-hating, boys are bad, we cause wars, uh, we are misogynists, and we have a rape culture, right? So, I mean, that's if you get involved in, God help you, government education or whatever, and maybe there are yeah. options there where you are. But none of these things are fundamentally sexual, right? And And the issue that you have with your girlfriend and your thoughts about your girlfriend is her past lovers, right? Yeah, I just uh, dislike the thought of, uh, well, actually, I'm not bothered about her boyfriend at all, about her ex- ex-boyfriend, not at all, because I know it's like uh, she felt loved, uh, she loved, so um, it's proof that uh, she's ready to commit. Is the casual flings that... Uh, oh, no, 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 hang on, hang on. I don't think that breaking up with someone after three and a half years shows that you're ready to commit, does it? Well, um, no. Um, right, so she, she, she was mean, her first guy, right? The, the, the first man she was in a relationship with in 17, right? That's a long time, three and a half years. That's like dog years back in your, when you were a teenager. So three and a half years, and then it ended. Do you know the circumstances under which it ended? Uh, I believe uh, he was like... Um, how to say it? Just uh, went cold after a while, or not? Not went cold, but um, he's kind of childish, so we didn't even sort of try. He didn't know how to try, how to give his best. Yet again, I cannot, you know, confirm that I wasn't present. So, uh... right. So, is uh, you've only heard about the breakup from her, right? Of course. And. In the breakup, she says that he was immature. Is that right? Yeah. So why, not, not, why was not, she with not, an immature not, guy? Not, not in a bad way. But, uh, no, no. If you like, break up with someone, it's always in a bad way. Of course. Uh, right? Nobody breaks up because they're happy. Nobody breaks up because they're fulfilled. Nobody breaks up because they think they can't possibly do anything better. No, Just people don't break up for those reasons, right? So. Yeah. If she broke up with him, did you know who broke up with who? Uh, I think it was uh, mutual. Okay. Yeah. It's it's almost never mutual, but okay. I mean, yeah. I'll go with the. I mean, of course, it goes uh, more to to one one person's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I mean, especially after three and a half years, you you know, you don't just end up on the same moment on the same day deciding. I mean, that's not not how things go down. But anyway, um, 
So does she think that she did anything wrong in the prior relationship or made any mistakes that um, she has talked about? Uh, not that come to my mind. She did say uh-huh. that. Okay, so she was with a guy for three and a half years. She broke up with him. And she doesn't think that she had any faults or, or problems in the relationship or in the um, breakup. I'm sure she did. But uh, I, I'm not sure whether she told me that even. Uh, yeah, don't know. Don't have any answer. And Peter, how are you doing in this conversation? You seem, you uh, seem a little... <laughs> Oh, sorry. I, we're friends. Really, we're, we're just, we're just a really bad call. Right? I have a really bad call. So if I go on mute, I'm either blowing my nose or thinking of oh, an yeah, answer. Right. <laughs> you know. So, and how are you doing in the call? You feel you feel okay? Uh, cold hands. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Sensation, anxiety, not feeling. Uh, but go on. A mix of anxiety and excitement. Say. Okay. Okay. And do you feel you feel anxiety in the conversation? Do you do you know why? Do you think it? I might turn on you or, or I might say something that's going to be no, harmful no. to you. Or It's just because of, you know, it's a, it's a strange experience to even be on the on this side of the call, you know, you know what I mean? Right. Okay. Yeah. That, that's it. I'm not experiencing any, any. Okay. Now, the casual flings that your girlfriend had, was she, were they supposed to be longer term, but they just, didn't work out that way? Were they kind of, well, backpacking through Queensland, Australia or something? I mean, why were they short-term and not longer-term or more in, invested in? Well, that, that's the part uh, that I don't believe. Not, not believe, but don't. Yeah, I don't believe. Uh, that, well, of course, we all know that girls oftentimes when they travel, they tend to, say, relax. Because uh, there is uh, no one to say judge them back home. So uh, yeah, it was I think a two month trip, and she ended up with just uh, yeah three guys, not at the same time, of course. But. So you that they were specifically designed to be flings, and flings of course mean sex, oh, right? I mean they were short term sexual relationships. I think that they spent uh, like a few days together. It's not like one case. I think was a one night stand. The other two were uh, forty eight hours plus. Yeah, you know, and um, according to the research, you know, casual flings, uh, where you're sort of having sex with the person for the first time, they're pretty bad. I'm fully aware of that. That's why they I'm, are. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, as I'm saying, I'm fully aware of that. That's why I'm having this call. Right. And and so there's a kind of judgment thing. Uh, I'll give you some uh, some numbers just for people who don't know. Uh, hookup sex, like, is, is pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, so after a hookup, 43% of women regret it. <laughs> Be careful, university students. Um, and a, a, a lot of women wanted a relationship to develop following a hookup. Like 43% of women wanted a relationship to spring out of a hookup. In other words, they're trying to catch the man with the the old quicksand vagina. Whoa, bear trap. (laughs) And 
12% of women actually just interestingly enough say that it's sometimes easier to have sex with a guy they don't know than to make conversation. Ooh, a little, a little too much tableting, ladies, uh, growing up. I'm sorry about that. Um, 49% of women and 26% of men feel bad after hookups, feel negative. And the sex is terrible. Terrible. Um, let me just see if I can find the numbers here. It's, um, it's not good. Um, so in hookups, in first-time hookups, 31% of men and 10% of women reached orgasm. 10%? I don't know. Maybe that's in the bathroom with, <laughs> with the sprayer or later. I don't know. But that's really bad. Less than a third of men actually reach orgasm. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> Bring a tube of toothpaste and pretend? I'm done. <laughs> and you're flossed. So um, it's, it's bad. You know, whereas in, in long-term relationships, just in the last sexual activity, 85% of men and 68% of women achieved orgasm. So women, you know, seven times better off in terms of sexual satisfaction than in a, um, uh, just in some casual hookup relationship. And uh, <laughs> believe it or not, in hookup culture, men receive a lot more oral sex than women do. Maybe it's because it doesn't come with tumors. I don't know. Anyway, so... Um, it's not a great decision to hook up with someone, to put it mildly. I mean, the sex isn't going to be that great. Odds are, if you're a woman, you're going to regret it as often as not. And, uh, you know, you don't know the person's sexual history, STDs, which you can get even if you have uh, condom, a condom on or whatever. So it's, um, it's usually not a great, a great decision. Uh, and for women, of course, well, we'll get into this. We've got a call later about feminism. For women, it's it's tough uh, as a whole. Um, the idea that you can screw a man into liking you, uh, into wanting to commit, I mean, that is that is entirely backwards in terms of like sex was the reward for commitment through almost all of human history, at least civilized human history. Sex was the reward for commitment. The idea that you have sex and then expect or want commitment is... Um, well, it's crazy. And then it's entirely backwards from our uh, evolutionary biology. So I just sort of wanted to get that information out there. And you said that you've had sort of the same kind of experiences in casual sex. Uh, it, uh, you know, it sucks and not in the way we, <laughs> we like as a whole. Are you still there? Yep. Ah, okay, good. So... How old are you? Or just are you mid sort of mid late twenties? Twenty one. I'm sorry. Twenty one. You're twenty one. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, you've been with women, and she could think about that if she wants, and it wouldn't do her much good if she loves you or cares for you. She's been with men, and you can focus on that if you want. Uh, I know it's not entirely a voluntary thing, but. This is the culture that we live in. You know, everybody's getting sloppy seconds. Everyone's getting used up people. Absolutely. And I'm not saying that you or your girlfriend are used up completely, but nobody gets to bang with that ring on the finger, new car smell. <laughs> it's just, it's almost never how it, it works these days. Was the relationship she had started at age 17? How serious was it? Uh, pretty serious. I mean, they... They, I know what they did uh, 
trips together, like uh, flight flights. Uh, went to different countries, continents, I believe. So I guess it was serious. And what's her family like? Uh, organized. Not 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 a broken family. No. Uh, hardworking father. Uh, mother as well. Sister in a, in a in a long term relationship. Living with her boyfriend. Right. Well, if you haven't, I mean, Peter, if you have no particular history that might make you wary of female fidelity, I mean, other than the one that you say isn't that important, and um, she herself has not been unfaithful in a relationship that you know of, right? I mean, it wasn't like these three hookups, uh, she wasn't like playing penis jacks with the ball, right? I mean, she wasn't, I mean, it was outside, uh, after her relationship ended, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a post-relationship about about, uh, three, two, three months after. Oh, really? Two, three months? Yeah. After three and a half years from 17, it was two or three months she was hooking up with other guys. No, no, I'm saying two months after the breakup, that's when these hookups happened. That's exactly what I said. A few months after she broke up from the three and a half year relationship she started when she was 17, she's having sex with other guys. I mean, I don't know. Does that seem a little fast to you? Fast. Uh, I mean, isn't there supposed to be a mourning period when you've had a breakup? I mean, I've heard, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard it's like half the length of time of a relationship is what you need to get over it, right? If a two-year relationship, it takes you a year to get over it, which is why every day you're in a bad relationship is half a day. You shouldn't be in another relationship. According to, you know, this is just, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's just a general rule of thumb. And... um to be with a new guy a couple of months after ending a three-and-a-half-year relationship that started when you were 17 does seem a little fast to me. As far as I know, uh, I thought that's what the modern culture you mentioned is, is like, that people just uh, try to yeah, like get a partner as soon as possible to get yes, their but, mind. But, but Peter, your girlfriend is not supposed to. I mean, if she was the generic representative of modern culture, I'd tell you the run. Right. I assume that she's different. I mean, you listen to this show, right? I assume that she's different from the generic template of modern culture, modern the way that, that culture tells women to to operate these days. I assume that she's not standard issue tart uh, in, in the modern sense, right? She's got some different characteristics. She does. She does. Okay, good, good. Good. Well, you know, I don't have anything particular to add. Um, she has a past. You have a past. Um, you know, you may be male and territorial, but, um, you know, if you were that territorial, you would have stuck with the first woman you were with, right? No, you're mine. You're right. Whatever, right? So I would say that um, if, if it's getting better, like you say, it's, it's diminishing. It's not bothering you as much anymore. Uh, continue to focus on her virtues. Uh, and I think that... I find that for me, information cures just about everything, <laughs> you know, inf- information cures. So it may be worth, uh, you know, if the relationship conversation about you feeling possessive or jealous of her past boyfriends or whatever, you're upset about it. If that didn't go well, it's usually not good to revisit it unless you have a lot more self-knowledge. But you can sort of say, I'd like to know more about the relationship, what happened, how did how did it end and so on. And if she doesn't take any ownership for how it ended, like she could say, well, he was immature, then the next obvious question is, well, why were you with a guy who was immature? 
Or another question would be, didn't your friends or family notice that he was immature? And if they did, did they say something? And if they said something, why didn't you listen to them? And if they didn't notice it, why didn't they notice it? And if they didn't say anything, why didn't they say anything, right? These sound like confrontational questions, but they're not. They're just trying to figure out somebody's history. You know, when we're with someone, all they bring with them is a narrative. You know, we weren't there. There's no video footage. There's no little omni-drone floating all around them recording everything that you can review and fast forward and pause on the interesting bits. So when people come to us, they come formed by their history to a large degree, but their history remains a story that they tell us, right? We cannot see the person themselves. We cannot see their environment. They, they haven't had body cams strapped to their hoo-hoo so we can measure ding-dong length from here to eternity. By the way, I would be eternity. But anyway, um, so when people come into our lives and we open our hearts to them and we become vulnerable to them and we become dependent upon their good approval and good, good, uh, good opinion of us, all we have from them is their story about who they are, their story about how they became who they are. You know, we think of history as something that happened. And, you know, for our own history, yes, there's a lot that happened. Believe it or not, there's a lot that we make up. And not consciously, but our own history is docudrama, <laughs> you know, adapted from a true story. That's, that's our own personal history. It's not security cam footage. It's not a documentary. Even documentaries are selectively subjected and edited and portrayed and so on. But our own history... It's like, based on a true story, has elements of a true story. A consultant who knows something about the facts worked a little bit on one scene. And our own history depends a lot on what we tell ourselves about our history. Right? If I say to myself, well, I'm never going to win. I'm always going to be broken down. Other people are always going to win. I'm not a winner. Well, you know, guess what? The history becomes the future. The circle is complete and your life is never going to be satisfying other than in a masochistic kind of, I knew I wasn't going to win. And most of who we are, I shouldn't say most, a good portion of who we are, Peter, is um, a dramatic retelling of things we can barely remember. Like, I absolutely know this for a fact, that when I think back of my own childhood, there's some things I know happened. But there are also some things I can't tell if I was there, or if I heard the story, or if I saw the pictures. Hell, I'm pretty sure that at least a couple of memories I have were movies I saw, I saw that I identified with so strongly that um, I uh, hang around in a bathrobe ghosting and having fight club meetings. But anyway, so when you're talking to your girlfriend, you need to, and this is the, a tip for everyone, to get to know someone. To get to know someone means knowing the narrative, knowing the story that they tell themselves about what happened. What happened has some objective effect on us, and we can't do much about that. But what happened to us, we do have the choice of how we interpret it. The meaning that we invest in the bald facts of our history is the essence of who we are, and more importantly, the essence of who we're going to be in the future. So when you're trying to get to know someone, when you're trying to understand someone, when you ask someone about, oh, what was your childhood like? Immediately, boom, you are in fiction land. Not because they're going to lie to you. But the first thing that they're going to tell you is the essence of what happened in their childhood. And that is the meaning, the meaning that they have extracted from their childhood. 
their meaning about who they are, about the world, about authority, about punishment, about reward, about egalitarianism, about fairness, about money, about shelter, about love. I mean, someone comes to me and asks me about my childhood. I could sit there and say, well, I got to tell you, day one, suddenly bright, a little blurry, upside down, somebody hit my ass. And then something stick, stuck in my mouth and I got some warm goo that tasted good and I napped for a little bit. It's kind of tiring. Oh, and somebody seemed to kill a snake that was attacking my belly. That's all I know. All I know. And day two, right? I mean, you, you could sort of do it that way and that would be a sequential kind of uh, explanation. But that's not, of course, no, not up yet. how people talk. Let me finish. Not, of course, how people talk about their childhoods, right? They say, my parents got divorced when I was 12. So when you ask someone about her history, which we should do because we need to know the narrative that we have a relationship with. We don't have a relationship with a person. We have a relationship with a story. We have a relationship with a narrative. That doesn't mean it's false. It doesn't mean it's all fiction. It just means that what, even what we remember about our history is important. And the order in which we organize it. What, what is the most important thing about our history? What is the least important thing about our history? Well, we never get to the least important because there's an infinity of things. Because what happens is there are moments in life, everything comes together, and there's this explosion of meaning. There's this eruption of meaning. This means something. Aha! I knew! Blah, 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 blah. It's always going to be this way. And this could be a positive or a negative thing. For a lot of people, of course, it's negative. And so learning... Someone is like reading a fiction novel. There's a lot of truth in fiction, more so than there is in nonfiction a lot of times, because there's emotional truth in fiction, but nobody thinks it's absolutely real. Nobody thinks it's nonfiction. We know that it's fiction. That doesn't mean that it's false, right? I mean, if somebody writes an autobiographical novel, like a novel based upon their own history, there's going to be a lot of truth in it. I mean, if you look at Tennessee Williams' plays, there's a lot of truth in Tennessee Williams' plays, even though they did in the fiction section under plays. So when you're talking to someone, Peter... You ask them the questions, and what happens is no matter what they no matter what they say in response, no matter what they say, they are lifting the lid on the metaphysics of their fiction, on the metaphysics of their narrative. There is no objectively most important thing that happened to you as a child. What was the most important thing that happened to me as a child? I don't know. Now, I can say, well, the one key event, the thing that happened to me, the blah, 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 boom, it was this. And everything followed from that, and that's the upside-down pyramid of my whole existence. Not if it is true. There's no objectively most important thing that happens to you as a child. And so, but people usually feel that there is, you know, when you say, well, how was your childhood? The first thing they'll say is obviously the most important thing that they're going to say, and that is the metaphysics of their narrative. And this is why I say, you know, and I've said this for years, people will tell you everything you need to know about them in the first 30 seconds or first minute or first five minutes or you know, depending on your antennae and how sensitive it is, it, it, uh, it's pretty clear who people are because they open the lid on the metaphysics of their narrative the first time that they tell you about something. You know, what was the most important thought? Tell me about your childhood. Boom. Here's the most important thing. They're always going to start with that. And that's going to be the very core of their narrative about themselves. And we have this repetition compulsion, I believe, with narrative. Because we don't want to be wrong. And the, the more we've invested in that narrative, the more painful it is to be wrong if the narrative is, is negative. And you can hear this. I mean, I'm sounding kind of negative because that's a lot of people's narratives. But 
you hear Donald Trump and he says, uh, I'm a winner. I've always been a winner. I always will be a winner. I mean, that is his narrative. Now, of course, he's got abilities and, and he's got charisma and he's got intelligence. He had resources. He's got height. Uh, and his narrative, though, that he is a winner is very, very important. And that's what people are drawn to. Make America great again. Not make America equal again. Not make America egalitarian again. Not make America humble again. Not make America the world's policeman again. Not make America the globalist stooge again. It's make America great again. And people re react to this make America great again because they have a narrative that they're small, that they're victims, that they're helpless, that they never had a chance, that they can't get ahead because there's sexism, there's racism, homophobia, whatever it is, right? And so when he's, his, his narrative of I'm a winner and we should all try to win again comes crashing into people's narrative of failure and helplessness and victimhood, which is so part and parcel of the identity politics of the left these days that it can barely be extracted from reality. It's like gravity. And so when you start talking to your girlfriend, you really, really need to listen with every cell of your body, every fiber of your being, every ear hair in your cochlea or wherever it is, right? You really need to listen. What is she saying about her history? What is she saying about her past relationships? What is she saying about her family? What does it mean to her? What narrative has she constructed, which she calls a personality? What story has she created, has she chosen, that she calls a character? And this is why I talk about self-knowledge, why I talk about philosophy. We can't change the objective world, but the objective world has very little to do with who we are. Certainly as we get older. I mean, if you're trapped in a hellish situation as a kid, you can't just will yourself into happiness and peace of mind. I get all of that. But as we get older, like when we escape the grips of childhood, if we had a bad childhood, when we escape the grips of childhood, Peter, we have a choice of a narrative that formerly was inflicted upon us. So listen to what people say. And most importantly, listen to what they don't say. Why was she with this guy for three and a half years? Does she know? Does she know why she broke up with him? Does she know what happened? Does she know what the trends were? And like all men, you have an instinctive understanding of hypergamy, which is a woman's desire to trade up or to marry up. If she has a habit, like let's say that she thought this guy was going to be some big thing. And he turned out to not be a big thing. And then she's just like, I'm trading up. And then she hooked up a little bit for whatever reason. And then, you know, maybe you're the next. But maybe you feel she can step up from you. Maybe, right? And I'm not saying all women are like this, but it's it's pretty important to female nature to, to at least understand it. If a woman's not like this, it's because she's recognized it and elevated philosophy above biology, right? So, I mean, I remember, oh, story, story, stories. Um, a friend of a friend told me this story once about he said, you know, when I was courting my wife, she's now my wife. He said, when I was courting my wife, I played guitar. I, I wrote music. I was in this big engineering profession. And I was, you know, I was very cocky. I was very, <clears throat> you know, I was, the world was my oyster. I was going to be this incredible guy. I wrote books. I wrote poems. Like I, she, he was just like a Renaissance man and a good singer. Anyway. And then, for reasons that are outside the scope of this particular story, he just never 
manifested. Lots of potential. Ooh, could be going places, just never manifested. Never wrote really any good songs. Never ended up even playing a coffee shop, just would sit there strumming his guitar in his basement or whatever. The engineering thing kind of puttered along. It was okay, but, you know, he just never... And his, his, he said, you know, my wife was like all over me when I had potential. And then I could feel this sort of rising disappointment and distance with how things weren't panning out. And I think the sad thing is, my particular opinion, was that in this situation, I think that he wanted to be loved for who he was, not what he did, right? Men as utility providers is wearing a little thin in the modern world, right? Which is where the MGTOW and other men's rights, uh, men's independence movements come from. Men are tired of being resource providers and dying sooner and getting injured more and killing themselves at four times the rate of women and all that. And I think that he didn't want to succeed in order to maintain her interest in him because that's too close to reality for a lot of people. We all think that love and sexual attraction is some magical, wonderful, great gift that society or life or the universe gives us for our greatness or whatever. But none of that is fundamentally true. We all know that, that love and sexual attraction, and it's, it's about having kids, and having kids means you need a lot of resources. So sexuality is about resource transfer, and that's just the way it is. I mean, that's just a fact that people need to grow the hell up and accept. I'm not putting you in this category. I'm just saying people need to accept that love, sexual attraction, uh, the, the, the flush and high of romance is just about getting people to bond so that resource transfers and the continuation of the species can occur. Um, you know, your heart, uh, your balls, your, 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 your clitoris, they're not serving your happiness. They're serving the needs of the next generation. And we just need to accept that as, as men and women as a whole. It doesn't mean we can't love. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy the experience of love. But it's not a drug designed to make us feel good. It is a drug designed to make us do particular things that enhance the chance of the next generation surviving or, or even existing in the first place. So I think that he had this illusion that his wife was supposed to love him for who he was, some essence of who he was. And he felt, well, if I'm not providing resources, why would she love me? And my perspective was and is, why would love exist if resources didn't need to be provided? That's the more important question, right? Why would love exist if resources did not need, if women weren't disabled by having babies, if women weren't disabled fundamentally by breastfeeding, by being up all night, if human babies weren't such ridiculously demanding time leeches and brain vampires and, you know, sleep ghouls, why would resources need to be transferred? And the fact is that human babies can only survive if resources are transferred from the male to the female, which is the whole point of love. And if the man can't provide resources to the woman, then biology is going to demand that she find someone who can. And if it's not going to be another man, guess what? She's got the vote. It's going to be the state. Which means other men in general. Men pay most taxes. So my suggestion is when you feel anxious in a relationship, it's because you lack information, which means that you're not having the important conversations and not truly listening. It's not a gotcha game. You just need to open your heart, open your mind, open your entire SETI-based listening apparatus and just absorb the story. May I just uh, comment? Uh, just let me finish, because her okay. story is going to be her future, and her story about men 
is most likely going to be your future too. Okay, Peter, that's the end of my speech. So go ahead. Yeah, um, I would say that uh, we actually do have quite a lot of conversations. We talk things a lot, especially since I started listening to you. You know, uh, we do too, we do talk things a lot. Uh, I just don't know in this case what exactly I'm supposed to look after. Uh, it should it be like the uh, the negative part of uh, from her side on why why they broke up. Uh, or because what I, what what I what I said uh, immature I didn't mean immature as an uh, it was an asshole but uh, not that way but um, they started seventeen of course at seventeen you still develop until mid twenties and they just didn't develop parallelly I suppose which right. which happens to quite a few people and you know I I think it's a pretty realistic uh, I don't scenario. yeah but I don't know what any of that means and neither do you so keep asking the questions uh, until. Um... Uh, until you get the answers. Now, I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I really, really appreciate that uh, call and that question. I think it's very, very important, and uh, I hope that uh, people find it helpful. Thanks so much for calling. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Up next, we have Jacob. Jacob wrote in and said, what do you think defines femininity today compared to masculinity, and has it been influenced by movements like feminism in a negative way? That's from Jacob. Hello, Jacob. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine, Stefan. How are you doing? Well, thank you. What do you think? Um, it's your show. I'm just gonna. Yeah, you know. Hey, I'll 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 give you my little bit. So, uh, I I wrote a longer, way longer email to Mike, but this whole question came about. I was talking to my mom, and she had a kid in class, and he has a, a very poor home life. Uh, and he sort of uh, attached himself to her. He would stay after class. He's not very good at math. She teaches math in high school, uh, but he he'd stay after, and he he's trying to study and she's helping him with work and he's he's trying to buckle down and really like not be the bad kid that he's got the reputation of being and she thought it was interesting how he just of his own will like picked her as like a surrogate mother almost asks her for advice things of that nature and uh he his girlfriend broke up with him and um he confessed to my mom that uh he was anxious about the relationship in the first place because um, she was his girlfriend was pressuring him in sex. My mother asked, "Is is that common? Is are is, do Wait, other, what does that mean? Pressuring him in sex? I don't know what that means." She she was uh, she wanted the girlfriend wanted to have sex with this with this guy. She she was she was um, making advances in that direction, and he did not feel uh, like doing that. He didn't want to. And she how old? Do, how what? What age are we talking here? I think sixteen, seventeen, somewhere around. Okay, he didn't want to have sex. Right, right. he okay. didn't want it. And and it struck me that um, and she she asked me. She said, "Is that common among uh, my age group?" She said, uh, "And I'm I'm not really sure among my own age group, but I have I play um, games online, and I've met a lot of guys that are four or five years younger than me, and I'm I'm 24." And um, they've told me similar stories. Their first girlfriend, whatever, that she really wanted sex, and they didn't really feel like like doing that. I mean, they felt like waiting just a little while longer, that kind of thing. Didn't want to risk having a baby, whatever. So um, it struck me that maybe the reason for that attitude shift, because the the, the stereotype is that is that the guy wants sex, right? The the high school kid, he wants. I mean, he's the horny the the horn dog, yeah. Uh, young, dumb, and full of cum. Exactly. So, yeah. so why would this? Why would this shift happen? And I, I thought that maybe this happened because the the things that define femininity 
have not only changed, but they've vanished. Whereas the things that define masculinity have just morphed. They haven't gone away. For instance, um, uh, things that will always uh, – the, the phrase, the phrase in English, uh, to become a man, right? If, after a guy has sex in, like at 17 years old, you know, he, 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 he's become a man, right? He's come into manhood, whatever. That, that type of phrase, do you know what I'm saying? There yeah. are other things that will um, enact that type of respect amongst your peers. Um, you're, uh, I remember when my, when my stepdad, I never really got along with him well, but it didn't matter when he, uh, we were doing yard work when I was, I don't know, 10. And instead of me working alongside him, he gave me a task to do by myself and expected me to go get it done. I, I, I felt manly because of that. Right. I'm not saying that that's always going to be masculine, but I felt manly because of that. I felt more of a man because of that task I was doing. So I think the thing. I'm sorry, which task was it again? You just cut out for a second. It was yard work. It was just uh, yard work. uh, Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. So and but the thing that was manly wasn't that it was yard work. It was that he gave me a task by myself, which was, hey, you've, you've worked alongside me a couple of times. You should know how to do this. I expect you to go get it done. That was. That type of license, that's not given to children. You know what I mean? Children are not given license. Men, men are given license. So um, I, I felt manly. Um, but my sister, on the other hand, could do the same exact thing. And she did often. She helped mow and, and trim trees and stuff like that. But that, she, she, never thought, she never thought about, oh, wow, I feel like such a woman. So what are those things? What, what are the things that make a woman feel like a woman? Whereas the things that make a man feel like a man, I, I, I think is just a fundamentally a respect from their peers or respect from um, men, especially men that are older than them. Okay, but the, the first question we need to ask is not what is a woman, but why is there a woman? Why is there a woman and why is there a man? For purposes of procreation, the only reason we have jigsaw puzzle squishy naughty bits is because... <laughs> right. It's because of sexual reproduction. Exactly. So if there's an essence to femininity, then it must have something to do with the needs of motherhood. Because the only reason that women exist and men exist is because of motherhood and fatherhood. There's nothing else that makes the genders have anything to do with anything except that. So femininity must be fundamentally related to motherhood, because that's the only reason women exist. Dude, can I just ask you for a tiny favor? I have to say this every single show. Sorry. When I'm talking, yeah, oh, yeah, wait yeah. till I'm done. Because if you're talking excited. in my ear, it's really distracting. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you're agreeing or disagreeing. I have to stop what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I promise I will stop. <laughs> I know sometimes I go on a bit. I no, promise no, no, I will okay. stop and let you speak. I got All right? excited. I'm sorry. Go Thank ahead. you, man. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate the enthusiasm. And now, um, this isn't going to be a long one. <laughs> yeah. So the essence of femininity must be motherhood. The essence of masculinity must be fatherhood. Now, of course... There are women who choose not to have children. There are men who choose not to have children. It doesn't mean that they're not women and not men. It just means they're free riders on the whole point of gender. Nothing wrong with it. Perfectly fine. Have kids, don't have kids. But femininity is motherhood. Masculinity is fatherhood. Do you agree with that? Yes. That, that's, that's actually that's, that's the, the crux of, the, of the, the question, I suppose, is since femininity, I mean, that's we've, what we've established, femininity is, is tied uh, to motherhood, then that I think is the problem. That's why that these younger men uh, that I've had inter- had interactions with are feeling pressure from um, 
their female companions for sex is because that is the only thing in these young women's eyes that can uh, give them femininity anymore. There's there's nothing that mm-hmm. makes them- I know. I, I, I can't go with you there. You and, don't think and so? Maybe you're right, but I'll, I'll, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let me tell you why. I don't know if you've seen the Gene Wars presentations that I've done, which is based upon the great work of anonymous conservative and others and, and a people couple, just but check it was, out. It was many months ago. Okay. So this is the R and K stuff, right? It's the R and K stuff, right? Okay. Femininity is very different between R species and K species. Now for those who just want the very, very two second version of this, um, K species are predators usually, bigger. Uh, they have a tough time getting food because they've got to hunt it. They hunt other animals, which is complicated and difficult. They need to pair bond. They need to invest in their children. Their children tend to develop more slowly, end up more intelligent, more sophisticated. They tend to be tribal, have a lot of social rules, care for each other, and and all of that kind of stuff. More complex organisms. The R-selected species are the ones who have no limit on the amount of food that they can consume. So think of like uh, rabbits in a field. Uh, the owl's got to hunt the rabbits and it's really tough and they win or lose, but the rabbits can just eat and eat and eat. And the only limiting factor on the rabbits is the is the owls, which they can't do anything about, so they don't bother. Now, in our selected species, the females are sexually aggressive. In K-selected species, the females are not sexually aggressive. The males are sexually assertive. In the, like, a female rabbit who's just given birth to her litter, like 15 minutes later, if a male comes by or someone strokes her, her ass goes in the air, she's ready again. So sexual availability, sexual aggression, sexual motivation is very high. Our selected uh, people, our selected uh, organisms have very high sexual drives because they're just reproducing. Reproduce, 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 right? Whereas the K-selected organisms can't reproduce like crazy, Because if there are too many of them and there's a limited food source, they're done. They're toast. And so the predictability of the environment versus the unpredictability of the environment, if you have a predictable environment that mastery and intelligence can help you succeed in, then you've got to have pair bonding and big investment into kids, restrained sexuality, and a commitment prior to reproduction. Commitment prior to reproduction. I mean, lion cubs take, I don't even know how long, to actually be old enough. It's years, I believe. Actually be old enough to go and hunt prey, right? I mean, I don't know how long it's weeks for rabbits, isn't it? Where they can start hopping around and eating, right? I mean, it's ridiculous how yeah, little resource they need. Yeah, their gestation period, or not gestation, their um, whatever, maturity time. Maturation. Yeah, thank you. Maturation period is is pretty short. Right. Right, so the female rabbit does not need a lifelong commitment from the male to basically pump out babies like somebody's firing a submachine gun full pump of tiny out babies fur. like rabbits maybe <laughs> yeah 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 so so i mean she doesn't need the commitment however the lioness or the female wolf or i mean they they need the commitment because they've got to spend a lot of time breastfeeding their um their cubs and and training them and and you know someone's got to keep bringing them all the resources they're tired and so anyway and it's if humans it's off off the charts so well, yeah, but wouldn't isn't there more of a i i guess um that's the biological aspect but what i'm suggesting is that there's the social cred that comes with having sex no 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 we're not we're not done the, <laughs> this won't make sense in a sec we're not done the oh okay the ahead. biological aspect so one of the key components or triggers for our selective behavior is father absence. Father absence. Father absence signals 
to the developing baby. And I believe, like the fetus, right? I believe that the absence of deep voices actually starts to program this. I don't know if that's ever going to be proven or not. But father absence is a prime trigger for our selected behavior. In other words, for women to act like traditional men, to be more sexually aggressive, and to have little thought to the negative consequences of sexual activity. Right? So, so in the past, you watch Downton Abbey or read Victorian novels or whatever, the fallen woman, right? The woman who had sex outside of marriage, the woman who was, had an affair, the woman who had whatever, right? She was unmarriable. Like, boom, you are off the, the dating market. You are done. You are, you are covered with scandal. Right. Maybe you can move to some new town. But even then, people will say, well, why did big, she move to big, a new town? Right? Big because, red right? A sewn on her breast. Right. And, and this is all considered in the welfare state, of course, it's all considered to be weird Victorian hysterical prudishness, right? Oh, these people were so crazy. It must have been so religiously mad. No, no, it's because it's because you need the male commitment in order to spend the 25 years it takes to raise a child to full maturation. It literally bred good behavior. Yeah, it really, really did. So if, if there's father absence, it means either there's a war, in which case the woman can't rely on a man's provision, and her, her reproductive strategy is rabbit. R for rabbit. R selected. Her, her reproductive strategy is, you know, bang as, as, as many guys as humanly possible who have reasonable markers for genetic health. The, the the quality of the character doesn't really matter because they're not going to stick around as a war or whatever it is, right? So father absence programs a woman's reproductive impulses or system to our selected behavior, which is why if there's no father around, girls hit puberty a year or more earlier than girls whose fathers are around. Like it actually programs the body. Huh. It changes the hormones. It changes the biochemical response. It changes sexual excitement levels. It changes re sexual restraint. It actually changes the entire body. And hypersexuality on the part of women is very strongly dose-dependent associated with father absence. The longer the father has been away, the more hypersexualized the girls are going to become. And that's just the way the biology works. You know, we, we don't, we're not born fixed, like, you know, like statues that just get bigger. We are born in a state of flux, and our, our genetics, or in this case, our epigenetics, are constantly scanning the environment. What's the best methodology for survival? What's the best? And this is why we got to the top of the food chain, is that a rabbit, a rabbit can't become a wolf. And right, a wolf sure as hell can't eat grass, but, but human beings can go R or K, depending on the environment. And we've got a video called The Truth About Single Moms, all the data, all the oh, sources. I think, you know, I think, don't take anything I, I think I'm watched, saying at my work. I watched that one. That was, uh, that was an interesting one. My sister, right. my sister didn't much care for that. But my mom, interest, <laughs> interestingly not. enough, my mom, as a single mom for at least the first seven years of my life, um, she, she agreed with all of it. Like, hands down. She, oh, yeah, he's totally right. <laughs> but my sister got all mad. Well, I can't believe you're saying these things about mom. So, so, so listen, man, this is the reality of why the girls want sex and the boys don't. It comes down to this. In the past, women faced negative consequences for sexual activity. Pregnancy, STDs, scandal, unmarriability, you name it, right? Especially, you know, no abortions, no birth control. Boom. One time, your life is destroyed. Right. So women face negative consequences for 
sexual activity outside of marriage, right? But now, who faces negative consequences for sexual activity? Uh, predominantly the men. I mean, if you want to go with like yeah. child support angle. Well, it's child support. It's alimony. Uh, it is, uh, he raped me. I'm yeah. not happy. Yeah. It, 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 he, he assaulted me. Well, and then, I have then there's the, the social pressure beyond that, even if she doesn't like demand anything. And there were a couple of girls that got pregnant in high school that they didn't, they didn't make demands, but the peer group did. Like if, if he, she basically didn't demand child support or anything. Hey, the family was going to, you know, help raise the child, et cetera, et cetera. So it really wasn't like a financial Bullshit. issue. You mean the taxpayers were going to help no, raise the no, child against their I mean, will. Either, either way, but they, um, these kids were 16, 17, right? But she didn't make demands of the guy. However, the peer group did. If he, you got a man up, he, step exactly, up. Exactly. If he didn't stick around right. with her, he would he would have been completely ostracized as as a uh, you know a, a bastard. He would have been uh, the most awful person in yeah. in the school. So what's happened is the roles have kind of reversed, and now women are the men, and men are the Victorian women. Because the risk reward calculation for a man with regards to sexuality is not what it used to be, right? I mean, it's not what it used to be. So, but are and you, so, are you... and, and of course, sorry, the prevalence of pornography and masturbation acceptance means that a man can, of course, achieve sexual satisfaction, I guess, to a limited but safe degree without getting involved with, uh, with a woman, right? Which is why right. the, um, one of the ways that you control male sexuality and really increase the sexual market value of women is to make masturbation a sin, a crime, and make your hands right, right. furry and, and make you crazy. Make you and go blind. <laughs> make you go blind. And, and um, what was it? Kellogg, I think, was one of the guys who was oh, behind yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Was, wasn't Kellogg advertised as the uh, product that would, that would help end masturbation? Right. And the reason you want to stop masturbation is to raise the sexual market value of women and to convince men that if they want to have an orgasm, they have to commit to a woman. And that so, – so men, of course, the, the sexual market value of women has gone down because of pornography and – or just masturbation acceptance. But at the same time, the danger of sleeping with a woman has gone up enormously, enormously. Because in the past, if a woman slept around, if a woman was um, a slut, then she was blamed. Now, the men were like, yeah, well, men are going to be men, right? If the woman is the gatekeeper. It's her job, Right, right. It sort but, of became like if I leave my wallet on a park bench for three days, come back, and it's gone. It's like, well, yeah, whoever took it was wrong, but come on. Right? But the, the men, at least in, in my, own, uh, my own age group, are, were then, and I still think now, were still not thought well of if they slept around with a bunch of women. They, they were not uh, respectable. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. But what happens now is that there still are enough vestiges of – what is called slut shaming or whatever, that a woman who is accused of sleeping around, of, of being um, loose with her morals of uh, right. hypersexuality, well, she can just say, um, it wasn't by choice. I was too drunk to consent. Whatever, right? She can, well, and and even even if it was her choice, she has uh she has her peer her peer group behind her that says uh don't you dare slut shame her and they uh you know uh, girl power et cetera et cetera and they they back her up they 
they say what you have done is not immoral. What you have done is fine. What you have done is okay. There's no ostracism or ostracism. There's no. Uh, oh yeah, there are there are slut walks. Right. Exactly. Right. All all and you know Halloween is just you know a chance to dress up as a, a, a porn fantasy. Hey, as a oh, and by the way, for, male, for more I, about Kellogg, we do have the truth about circumcision, just so people can. No, sorry. Go ahead. I said I said a 24 year old male. I quite like Halloween. Halloween at college is pretty okay. Yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> Halloween is basically creepy cleavage. That, that's oh, all yeah. it is, creepy cleavage. Um, but anyway, so so the fact that uh, uh, the girls that you're talking about are more sexually aggressive and that the boys are like, eh, I don't know, you know, whatever, right? That is, um, well, it's a reversal, but it's a reversal very based on completely clear biological uh, reasons that um, the, the, the genders have reversed, that before – the risk was with the girl, and now the risk is with the boy, and therefore, and and because there's a lot of father absence, and because welfare has created this sort of African plenty in a non-African society, right? Like in Africa, it's really not that hard to get food, right? I mean, you got nuts, you got fruit. There's like, um, you can always. Human beings are incredible at running in heat because we're vertical. We don't have our backs to is, the sun. Is that uh, post scarcity? That you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So, so the welfare state has made a post-scarcity society, uh, and when you have a post-scarcity society, which rabbits have with regards to uh, grass and and all that, well, what happens is uh, you end up uh, with the sexual habits of your average tree frog. You know, just bang anything that moves, lay six thousand eggs, and move on. And so, when you get post-scarcity, you automatically get our selected behavior, which is why the welfare state is so dysgenic. It's, I mean, for so many different reasons, but it's so retrogressive. It is moving us back to an earlier stage or more primitive stage of psychosocial development and and uh, epigenetics. And so, these, yeah, these these roles have uh, have reversed, and they will continue to be this way until the government runs out of money, and then things will change. <laughs> rather rapidly right hopefully in the uh next couple of months maybe maybe things will start to turn around um well i don't know I, I'm, doing my, I'm, I'm 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 hopeful thing, i'm and, hopeful uh, it might be it no, might be but, that uh, too you know? that's that's i i i agree with what you're saying i mean i especially with the r and k stuff but to 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 suggest that it's all entirely like biologically driven that's that's what i'm i guess uh i differ with you okay what some, percentage would you say what percentage would you say? I mean, nobody can ever say 100% because well, that's determined. Right. I get that. I mean, uh, and that's a straw man because I never said it was yeah, all 100%. Right, right, right. No, but that's that That was the question. And as to what percentage, I, I'm not sure that it matters, but that's what I was as is asking. That's the point of the question is what it, social factors are there for the um, the pursuit of masculinity and the pursuit of femininity? And in that pursuit, how much of it is defined specifically by, um, I, I guess, sexuality, but specifically sex. Like, I, I think, uh, like, pregnancy, for instance, will always define femininity forever. That will never not be feminine to be pregnant, right? I mean, motherhood will always be feminine. But uh, I would... No, no, would, but sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but um, motherhood for the wolf is very different from than motherhood for the rabbit. So you can say femininity, human femininity is about motherhood, but motherhood is, is not the important aspect. Mother, motherhood is not the important aspect of femininity. Resource transfers in a, in a free environment, in a free society, it's the resource transfer that has made the difference between men and women. It's not the fact that women get pregnant, that women are smaller. Women are smaller because men have to go out and get resources for women. 
So women might as well be smaller because if they're smaller, they use fewer calories, which means the man has to work less hard, which means to feed them, right? Which means that uh, they're less exposed to danger and all that kind of stuff. So it's the resource transfer, man. That's the important thing. When you screw up the resource transfer, which the welfare state has completely done, not to mention old age pensions and Section 8 housing and food stamps and all the usual crap, right? When you screw up the, re the resource transfer, you fundamentally change what it is to be a man and a woman. And it's no coincidence that uh, the pill... And the welfare state and feminism all happened very close together. I just realized because the welfare state fundamentally screwed up the resource transfer al algorithms that define masculinity and femininity, which means that you can have bullshit like uh, you know third wave feminism as it's become now. Right. What does it matter? I mean, there's there's no resource transfer that makes any difference uh, whatsoever. Why do men have forty percent more upper body strength than women on average? Well, because men have got to go out and hack their way through and bring down animals and, and build structures and, and shelters and barns and crap like that because, you know, Hillary server is and shouldn't just be out in a field. That'd be completely irresponsible. <laughs> right. So so the, the sexual dimorphism, right, the difference between men and women entirely defined by the helplessness of the woman during pregnancy and breastfeeding, the need for the man to go out and get resources. That's what defines love. That's what defines attraction. That's the need for commitment. So forget about being pregnant. I mean, tons of species get pregnant. Right. It's the helplessness of the woman, the dependence of the human child and the need for massive resource transfers from the male. That's what defines masculinity and femininity. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just, I was just uh, saying uh, pregnancy from a social aspect. Like, like when, a, when, a, um, when a woman gets pregnant, or sorry, even, sorry, when a girl gets pregnant, she comes into womanhood by virtue of a bodily function, you know? And that that will always be. Um, no, that no, that's no. Come on, that's you not don't pregnancy. think so? That's that's no, no, no. That's that's uh, other, that's, other uh, women that's, do that's, not that's respect. Uh, that's what I mean. Wait, other are you, other are you women that a woman who never gets pregnant, a woman who's infertile, can't be a woman. I mean, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that's the only thing that defines femininity. I'm saying that that is a thing that will always contribute to like coming into womanhood. Other women will respect women that become pregnant. Is what I'm saying. What? Always. What? Other women will respect women who become pregnant? Yes, Have you not it, heard anything um, about the mommy I, wars I'm, and I'm, feminism's hostility towards the stay-at-home moms? And, uh, women, really? that I've been, women that I've been around, they've, they've always been, um, I don't know, it's almost grandmotherly. Like they always get really excited when somebody's pregnant and there's a baby involved and they just they lose their freaking mind. No, there's, you You got to look up uh, Italian feminists completely bitching about the government. The government's trying to raise the birth rate oh, yeah. by reminding women that they've, you know, that the fertility starts declining for women when they're 25. Right. In 30, it accelerates. 35, you're really rolling the dice and, and you know, 40, uh, you're, really, you're playing the lottery. The, uh, and no, so no, the, the Italian government, dude, uh, dude, dude, what do we say? Yeah, yeah, my bad. Thank you. So the Italian government is uh, trying to get Italian women, or I guess women in Italy, to have babies and the feminists are going completely nuts oh how dare you treat us like we're just some breeding machines <laughs> where's their goddamn happiness about all of the women who are going to be big with child and oh anyway it's uh yeah so so k women uh, i think are pretty excited about women who get uh, uh, women who get pregnant and so on but uh, our selected women eh, that's just an annoyance and it's in the way and all that kind of stuff right well, i mean for our selected women it's a thing that happens all the time right by virtue of being our <laughs> selected women right <laughs> Yeah, and listen, just so so I've I've in in the Gene Wars presentation G E N E, which I really really recommend people watch. It's a very core part of what we talk about here. People get kind of confused because they say, "Well, wait a minute, you're saying that our selected creatures have higher sex drives, and leftists and communists tend to be our selected, but why do they have so few children?" 
Well, that's, of course, because of birth control. Our higher sex drive is supposed to be for more children. Uh, biology and evolution have not quite woken up to the fact that uh, procreation uh, has become well, procreation, uh, ch child uh, fertility, right? In pregnancy has become optional. So uh, the higher sex drive is nothing to do with the number of kids. But sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was, um, I was just thinking about how this has become sort of a chicken and egg discussion. I'm, I'm asking whether or not uh, the pursuit of femininity or masculinity has been affected by um, feminism or other such movements, or I mean, you might even go so far as state communism and, and things of that nature and other other social changes. Um, or have these social changes been affected by uh, the fact that people have been shifting more towards R and K from a, a biological standpoint? So those started no to towards create R these. from K. Yeah, not you're R right. So, towards yeah. towards R from K, and have these things uh, created the environment where we have th stuff such as feminism, which uh, perpetuates um, the R selection of people because it, it it suggests that being a slut isn't um, shameful and it promotes it promotes an R mentality. Well, and and or you know for for rabbits being a slut is perfectly sensible. Right, right, right. Because, I mean, you, you don't if if your gene like if if your genes are stuffed up the ass of a of a female rabbit. I love these sentences. But so if your genes are stuffed up the ass of a female rabbit, you want that male penis in the female rabbit vagina. Right. As quickly and as often as possible. Don't play coy. Don't ask for three dinners before you have sex with him. Just stick your ass in the air and have him, you know, mount you like a picture on a wall. Right. And uh, that, that makes perfect sense. So in a an R-selected environment, then slut shaming is completely inappropriate. Sl being a slut, for want of a better word, being sexually promiscuous, uh, hypersexualized in an R-selected environment, mwah, that is your optimum reproduction strategy. It's not like the wolf reproduction strategy is better than the rabbit. Both have evolved for their own particular environments. So when you have the welfare state, uh, when you have generally men being pillaged by the state to pay for women who are having lots of babies, then of course it doesn't make much sense to slut shame because being a slut, so to speak, being sexually promiscuous is a perfectly valid R-selected strategy. You know, oysters have, I don't know, many billions of <laughs> eggs or whatever. I mean, you know, the, 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 the frog, you know, lays this giant walking carpet of <laughs> looks like caviar. Or, I mean, it's perfectly valid. So when you have the welfare state, slut shaming is wrong. But if you don't have the welfare state, if you have charity, if you have uh, private uh, um, voluntary money transfers or resource allocations, then slut shaming makes total sense. That makes total sense. And it would come from the elders, right? Because if your daughter right, right. gets pregnant and there's no welfare state, you either have to spirit her off, in which case everyone knows what happens and she's fundamentally unmarriable because, you know, wolves don't want no sloppy seconds. There's right. your title, Mike. And... Um, the parents, all the parents have to pay for the next 20 years. So the parents don't want to, like, but if the welfare state's paying for it at all, we're in an R-selected environment. So why the hell wouldn't your average female human rabbit raise her ass every time it rains? So I guess the logical question after that is, uh, is this, uh, is this a cycle or when will this, when will we shift back to a more case-selected society or are we forever? Dude, come on. Are we You've got to be stuck? listening better than that. Not only is it in the entire framework of what I've said, I actually said it very specifically. Oh, then I missed that part. My bad. Okay. So R-selected is when there is an excess 
of resources, right? Post-scarcity and excess oh, of like, resources. There's right? the answer. We, we never go back because I, I don't know how we'll, how we'll ever get to No, it. the welfare state. I already said this six million times, right? The right. welfare state. When the government forces men to give resources to women, when women marry the state at the expense of men, when the welfare state gives us the post-scarcity environment, the, welfare, the post-scarcity environment isn't people have lots of stuff. The post-scarcity environment is... It doesn't matter what you do, you get shit anyway. You get the resources anyway. It doesn't matter if there's a man around, doesn't matter if you're likable, doesn't matter if you're 300 pounds, doesn't matter if you're a horrible person, doesn't matter if you beat up your boyfriends, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have a job, doesn't matter if, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're honest, doesn't matter if you lie, doesn't matter if you cheat, or doesn't matter. So the welfare state is firing resources at women who have children. And uh, by the way, just for those who are curious, I subsume things like alimony and child support under the welfare state, right? The welfare state includes all of the forced, tra- all forced transfers of money that includes alimony, child support, and Because those and are enforced things. by the law? Yeah. Okay. So you, so you are in a situation where you do not need the commitment and love and loyalty and security and provision of a man for your children to survive. You don't need it. You don't need it. I don't need no man. Of course you don't. <laughs> I'm a you strong, got, independent woman. I'm a strong, independent woman now. Where's my check? Right. Where's my government cheddar from the men folk? Right? I mean, I don't know who that was. <laughs> I'm sure I offended everyone. It was a caricature but, of something, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So I only do Valley Girls. That's about it. So. <laughs> So no, it's 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 not po- post scarcity doesn't mean that we're in a capitalist situation, right? Post scarcity simply means that the woman gets the benefits of marriage without actually having to practice the virtue called being married, without having to be a good person, win a good man, stay a reasonable weight. You know why I think why women getting so fat? Well, one argument could be. Because women stay thin because they don't want their men to go get a little something, something on the side. So they stay thin and they stay attractive and they stay healthy because they want to be sexually attractive to their husbands. Oh, did you marry the state? Is the state going to break up with you if you get fat? No. (laughs) So you don't need to stay thin because the government's going to give you money either way. But if a woman loses her sexual market value, especially if she has a high status male, well, he's going to be trading her in now, isn't he? (laughs) So this is another reason why I think women are sort of gaining weight uh, as a whole. And um, men are gaining weight because they're bombing out of the market of, of reproduction, blah, 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 blah. So, right. so yeah, for, it's, it's, it's all about the welfare state. And I know this sounds like uh, there's an old um, Matt Gurning cartoon called Life in Hell, which was actually quite influential, especially the one about graduate school. But um, – he said, you know, the crazy teachers you have, right? Right. And one of them is the teacher, like, one theory explains everything. Oh, right? yeah, and yeah. It's yeah. something like, yeah, the entire world's right. economy is dependent yeah. upon the price of magnesium. Yeah. It all like that, comes right? back to magnesium. Every single lecture, always back to magnesium. You could be talking about calculus. It's back to magnesium, that guy. Right. Yeah. Right. So now I know I talk a lot about the welfare state, but the welfare state, if we're going to talk gender... And given that gender is dependent upon the need for resource transfers and the welfare state is a completely artificial, coercive, destructive, massive resource transfer, 
then if you're going to talk about gender without talking about the welfare state, then it's kind of like trying to talk about the solar system while pretending there's no such thing as the sun. Yeah, you can't even isolate any of the social aspect because the welfare state is the society. I mean, that's that's the thing that governs the basically the interactions between everybody to, to some degree or another, ultimately, right? Yeah, and, and if gender is defined by resource transfer, which is vol- the, the, whether it's voluntary or not, is kind of the key thing. Right. You know, the whole difference between fun and a crime is consent, right? <laughs> right. So if you're going to have sex with someone and they Accurate. consent, woohoo. If they don't consent, clang, you know, right. you are in, in a bad territory. So the consent versus non consent, that's the difference between borrowing and stealing, right? I mean, right, it's, it's right. a huge moral divide. And so the issue is. Um, Resource transfer that is voluntary breeds virtue, breeds great things. Resource transfers that are coercive and involuntary breeds social destruction. One enhances masculinity and femininity since it is dependent upon resource transfer. The other destroys masculinity and femininity and in conjunction with other things like um, perhaps a little bit of uh, uh, overcry of, of negative sexual experiences for women, it can reverse the, the, the gender roles. And uh, this is why you have uh, men who are generally asexual these days, a lot of them, like the and uh, women who are uh, hypersexual. Um, it has reversed, as you would completely expect when you reverse the resource transfers and you make it coercive, you reverse the genders. Interesting. Well, that makes sense. That's, that's, pretty, much, that's pretty much all I got for you, my friend. All right. Well, uh, lads, remember there's still some porn out there. Uh, I believe some of it is coming from Venezuela these days, so... <laughs> Check it out. Thanks so much for your call, man. Uh, a great pleasure. Feel free to call back in anytime. All right. I appreciate it. Have a good night. Thank you. All right. Up next, we have Miko. Miko wrote in and said, I'm a 23-year-old Canadian male. I was liberal by default until about a year ago when I woke up from the Matrix thanks to my dad. I'm completing my English degree this winter. I work two jobs. I own a small business, and I'm an independent actor slash filmmaker. I want to create an online media platform and contribute to the crucial global conversations, but worry that becoming a public political figure in a region dominated by lefties will jeopardize my business. Can I do both, or will I have to sacrifice my business? That's from Miko. Yeah, Miko, it's no problem. I can dip back into the IT business world anytime I want with no negative repercussions. So, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So how you doing tonight, Miko? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. A little tired, but uh, but very well. Um, so, so, English degree. Step me through that logic there, brother. Well, uh, all white males are evil and patriarchy. And uh, yeah, basically, that's pretty much it. You know, you have to have soft covers because hard covers are phallic and sexist. Yes. Yes. They Got offend it. me. They offend me. And they have spines and spines oh, are masculine. That's a big, big problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I survived that, basically. I like it was sort of halfway through my degree where I was red pilled, and I'm like, "What the?" I always thought. Oh, yeah. I always thought this. I was like, I always thought, "What the hell is going on?" But then I finally realized, "Okay, yeah, what the hell is going on? What are they teaching me here? Like, this is such a waste." Um, how did you? Uh, how did you get yourself? Re- what are you stupid? Like, why the hell would you get red pilled halfway through an English degree? <laughs> Wait till you're done. You know, that's like that's like pulling out a blow up doll of Margaret Thatcher while in the middle of a threesome with whoever you find attractive. Is like, oh dear, I believe we have just killed liftoff. Yeah, I know, right? So, mm-hmm. it's tough. It's tough. Well, hey, I said I was an actor, so that kind of helped. Right. Pretending that it's normal, you know, pretending that it's good. What you know, what I'm learning. 
Now, for those, of course, uh, uh, for our American friends, um, they're going to want to know, how much debt did you end up with uh, with this degree? And because it's Canada, it's not so bad, right? Well, actually, see, I would not have uh, went to university if my parents didn't uh, pay for it. Like, they wanted me to go. Like, they said, go to school. We'll pay for you. Like, please go. I was like, okay, okay, I'll go. Because if I, if, if I had to pay on my own, I would not have paid because I do not like debt. I don't like debt at all. So, thankfully, I'm uh, privileged that uh, I was able to go, that my parents funded me. Well, who knows if that's privilege or not, right? I mean, you got a lot of programming and you did forego four years of actually having a real job and mm-hmm. getting income and mm-hmm. building experience and contacts. And, uh, you know, you'll always mm-hmm. be four years behind in your career, right? Totally agree. I totally agree. All right. And how did you uh, how did you end up getting red pilled there, my friend? Uh, pretty. Oh, just for those who don't know, that just means that you're, you know, it's the Matrix analogy. You're kind of waking up to... Uh, in particular, I think it refers to men's rights uh, and it refers to uh, waking up to female nature and, and uh, gynocentrism. And so, is that mm. fairly close or is it something else? Yeah, it's – well, I used to be a socialist, right? Like I used to think that government could solve <laughs> – You're yeah. Canadian. Yeah, I, that's, I know, right? It's, that's crazy. But yeah, no, I, that's what I said. As liberal by default, Just that's just the way we are, I don't know, programmed here. But eventually – and I was, a, uh, I was a zeitgeister when I first – started waking up I, yeah i thought I, I thought that was the the route we have to uh, we have to go and march and destroy everything and we have to totally you know capitalism is the is the evil when no it's not capitalism that's the evil what's that is that springsteen song i'm waiting tonight for the robot city <laughs> exactly so uh yeah so as i started waking up first both me and my dad we were zeitgeisters we were like oh yeah it's capitalism that's the evil then we realized hold on a minute uh, we started watching Alex Jones, and he uh, told me, he's like, hey, check this out. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, oh, wait, okay, yeah, okay. What, not all white people are racists. Um, capitalism didn't destroy countries. It's actually the only thing that creates uh, prosperity. Um, so, yeah, we together we woke up anyway from that socialist sort of mindset. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, like your show, which we watch every day, and we... How did you how did you first find me? Was it through Alex or was it through something else? No, um, I think I was watching I was either watching Alex or Gavin McInnes or Rebel Media. I just saw you on the side. It was recommended videos and I watched I think it oh yeah, the untruth about Donald Trump. Yeah. Oh yeah. We are huge, huge Trump supporters, big time. Right. Mm-hmm. Gavin, uh g- g- you know, apparently apparently Gel gives you a lot of insights. Yeah. Um, I wanted to pass that out. Yes. Um, that is a tight beard. Uh, no, he shaved, he shaved it, it, I think, it, recently. So, anyway, for an acting um, role. <laughs> I yeah, had to find out why he shaved. Role? I was like, why? I know. <laughs> to make him look and younger. it's for an acting role? Yeah. Yeah. He said it was to make him look younger, but he said it didn't really work. He said he looked weird. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a strange thing, and I, I didn't have uh, as... Uh, I mean, he's, he's not exactly uh, full on Karl Marx, but uh, a little further along than Lenin, but... Uh, all right. Yeah. All right. So you want to do something good for the world, but not get in trouble with uh, <laughs> the people who profit from its badness. Yeah. I wanted to rock the boat without anyone know, knowing it's me rocking it. So why don't you just do it anonymously? That's, you know, I thought about that. I think it would. I, I'm actually uh, a, uh, an elderly Asian gentleman. <laughs> okay. Uh, not many people know that. Um, it's all done with uh, hand puppets and. Uh, um, cryogenics oh. uh, and CGI, but uh, anyway. Okay. Well, the Hillary uh, campaign should uh, enlist you if you have those sort of 
resources. <laughs> right. <laughs> My human flesh suit works. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I don't want to be anonymous. I think that. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, now, now, oh, now, let's be fair. Yes. If you're worried about negative repercussions, okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. then being anonymous is something you partly want, right? In other, in other words, yeah. if you could achieve the same good through anonymity as you could through putting yourself at risk by being out there in the public sphere and speaking against lefties, mm-hmm. although soon I'm going to hope that it's going to be speaking against righties, but anyway, mm-hmm. uh, just for balance, not because I'm a righty, but um, yeah, uh, then so let's, let's just be clear about that, that there's a part of you that does want anonymity. Um, there's a part of everyone. I guarantee you everyone who's got any kind of public uh, life at some point has said, damn it, I wish I'd done this anonymous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but everyone, I guarantee you, has had that thought at one time or another. Mm-hmm, totally, yeah. But the thing is, I think that I can do a lot more good. I can have a way bigger effect. For example, you or Paul, or Paul jo- Joseph Watson or Milo or anyone, if they were anonymous, you wouldn't get their personality and you wouldn't get um, – it just wouldn't have the same effect, right? There's another great uh, YouTuber, uh, Black Pigeon Speaks, and he's anonymous. He does an unreal job. But I think for myself, I would do, I could do a lot better using my comedic skills, using my writing and my acting and using that, uh, yeah, to the, to the end that we, to, to, yeah, for the conversation, to continue the conversation. Well, I mean, just so you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's no going back. Like once you put yeah. up that first video, you know, that, that, that door don't open both ways. That, that you really, really need to be aware of. And this is not trying to goose you or anything, but, you know, you you, you get born that way. There's, there's no going back in the womb. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't go back, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. There's no, you know, you don't get the toothpaste back of the tube. You no. can't unring the bell. Once you're out there, you're committed, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's, you know, that has its pluses and minuses. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, good, the good news is you're committed. <laughs> because you can't go back, you won't be tempted to crawl back into your hole. But, um, you know, there are times, of course, where, you know, it can be uh, a little exciting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no going back, you know. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, if people really want to find you, is it really going to be that tough? I mean, unless you completely disguise your voice, someone's going to mm. listen to you and like, hey, I know that guy. Like yeah. I had a, I had a, um, a guy contact me. Um, he had a, a lovely family and was a great haven for me when I was younger after school. And um, he contacted me uh, recently and I just wanted to say hi to him. Thanks very much for the contact. And he's like, you know, I'm just browsing around on YouTube and I, I didn't even see you. I just, I heard your voice and within like, Four seconds, I'm like, that's the guy I hung out with when we were in uh, in, in uh, junior high school, and um, it was yeah, he was a, it was a great it was a great friend and a wonderful family who I really appreciated their hospitality. Not the Iranian family who was great, the Iranian English family, Persian, sorry, Persian, always people, always Persian. Yeah, but um, and he so he heard me, and he's like, that's Steph, that's the guy I hung out with uh, for a couple of years when we were in. Um, uh, in uh, junior high. And so, uh, I don't know, to what degree do you have to disguise your voice? And then do you use mm-hmm. whatever, I don't know, Tor or whatever the hell it is uh, that, that that you can find some way to get your... Someone is going to figure out who you are. And especially the more effect you have, mm-hmm. then the more people are going to want to figure out who you are. Mm-hmm. And then maybe they'll use some less positive <laughs> methods to try and find out who you are. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the anonymity thing, I think it only really has value if you're not having much effect. But the moment you really start to have an effect, and by, by have an effect, I mean affect people's relationships. The rest of it is all entertaining nonsense. But, you know, if, if you're having an effect on people's relationships, mm-hmm. then that has a very big uh, impact on people for positive uh, and, and negative effects. So that's an important thing to, to recognize. Now, of course, you're really screwed because you've come on this show and talked about <laughs> it. So even if you decide to become anonymous, people are like, hey, didn't I hear that guy on that Freedom Aid radio show? Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Sadly, not that many people that I know listen to the show. So and just kind of people in my city in general. I, I mean, maybe they do, but kind of a liberal wasteland, even though this is supposed to be like the last bastion of conservatism in Canada. It's a liberal wasteland, too. So it's kind of sad. What is the last bastion of conservatism in Canada? Uh, Calgary, like Alberta. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, because you guys have to deal with reality, not just uh, ideology, right? Right. A lot, of, a lot of natural resources out there that don't respond to social justice warrior whining. Yeah. I'm going to complain that <laughs> that oil right out of the shale. Yeah. Yeah, you can't uh, chop a tree with feminism, so... <laughs> <laughs> Although it could be tempting to yeah, think yeah, it about could, it. It could from be. Time to time. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, like also the anonymity for me wouldn't it. Yeah, I'm not doesn't really appeal to me because I am already like a pretty widely known person uh, in my community, at least like I have a lot of friends. Uh, I'm trumping. I'm really popular. People know me. I'm great. OK, but yeah, like I have sort of a a large sphere of influence. So I think I could use that in a positive way. I just have to be very tactful. Like I'm not going to come up with my first video is going to be Islam. Like what Islam? Like I, I think I could do it in a more tactful way and sort of, you know, wait, Islam. What is that? How do you spell it? Hang on. I'm not sure. I know that word. I, I Z. Anyway, never mind. (laughs) All right. Do you mind if I, um, mention a thing or two more? Yes, sir. Okay. So now this is going to be a pendulum seesaw kind of thing. So now that I've told you the negatives, um, I'll tell you the negatives that make a positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think society's gotten to the place, my friend. That what do we have to lose? Mm-hmm. Like I could understand in the 1950s. You know, in the 1950s, it's like, yeah, you know, maybe I'll take it kind of easy. You know, yeah, okay, maybe the communists are infiltrating the State Department, but I don't want to die at 56, like. Uh, Joseph McCarthy or whatever, maybe I'll let it slide, you know, and it's true, you know, we had decades and decades to go where things were kind of chugging along, not too badly and all that, a cold war and all that, but, but now, you know, things are at the point where, what are you saving yourself for? Well, I don't want to get in trouble. Well, you know what? Trouble's coming. Trouble is coming. There is no running through the tunnel of time to get away from trouble anymore. It's that close. It's that close. You know, it's it's one thing to say, well, I don't want to poke the bear. I don't want to upset the bear. I understand that. Let your sleeping bear lie, creep on past. But when the bear is chasing you through the forest uh, and it's gaining on you, you got to do something. You know, like you're past the point of don't poke the bear. So trouble is coming and trouble is close. Trouble could damn well be as close as November in the elections in the United States. So trouble is coming. And this idea, you know, in the past, I've used this thing called the against me argument, which I still consider perfectly valid, where I say to people, go and really 
get in people's faces in your relationships and tell them how terrible the system is that we have. And, you know, some people have done it. Some people think I'm a terrible person for making this argument without ever being able to rebut it or whatever. But the reality is that let's just, you know, bounce over to Europe for a second and I won't do the whole presentation, but Deutsche Bank's in a mess, you know, where their stock is down to like 8% what it was a couple of years ago. And they just got hit with a $14 billion fine from the Department of Justice. And Merkel says she's not going to bail them out because you don't bail out German banks. You only bail out all the refugees in the known universe. So not that either is fine, but um, so, you know, my German listeners, maybe you didn't want to push the issues with your family. Maybe you didn't want to push the issues with your friend. And they're a huge bank. Like they are the brain of the octopus that reaches everywhere. And if and their exposure to derivatives is like many, many times the size of the entire German economy. I mean, it's it's a house of cards if a house of cards were made of lead and fire and landing on your head. And so people are, well, you know, I didn't want to push it with my family. Okay, well, what if your family can't withdraw their money tomorrow? You know, they, if they don't get a bailout, they're going to get a bail-in. And a bail-in is when they just take money from their depositors. That could happen. Could more than It's more than just a little likely. And so I got to wonder, you know, if, if your family wakes up tomorrow and they can't get their money, the ATMs aren't refilled, and they go online and they can see, or maybe they can't get their pensions, or maybe something, something. Maybe they're going to turn to you and say, damn it, why didn't you push us harder? You knew, and you were like dancing around it and not wanting to upset us. Well, now we're upset. Why didn't you push us? You know, like you've got some Christopher Hitchens-style smoker and drinker in the family, right? And everyone's like, well, you know, we don't want to run upset him by saying he should quit, you know? I mean, he gets a little sensitive about it, so we'll just let him, right? And then the guy gets some god-awful disease from his bad habits. At some point, he's going to say, why the hell didn't anyone just push hard? Because that would have saved my life. Why didn't somebody get in my face about the stupid things that I was doing? You were not being kind to me by being oversensitive to my feelings and not wanting to upset me because now I'm upset because I'm going to die. Right? So I understand if it's a long way off, still not right, but I understand it. But it's close enough now that I think people, like those of us in the know who really get it, if we're not in people's faces, we are not being their friend. We are not helping them. We're not being loving. We're not being caring. We're not helping them. We're just trying to avoid conflict. We're being kind of cowardly. So uh, the mess is an old Gary Larson cartoon, The Far Side. And there's, there's these two cavemen. There's this big giant glacier, like three inches from their cave. 
One caveman looks at the other and says, Say, Thag, wall of ice a little closer today? That's where we are. Except it's coming faster. So I get what you're saying, and I would have more wait-and-see stuff 10, 20 years ago. But now those of us who are in the know, like I'm sorry, alcoholics and cigarette addicts, but I'm taking this stuff out of your hand. You may hate me now, but you'll love me later. Yeah, I totally agree. I've been uh, I've been doing a lot of wait and see. I've doing, been doing that for like probably I don't know six seven months or like maybe a year, however long it's been since I've been in the know. And uh, I've I've talked to my close friends, and I've got some of them. Some of them are on the Trump train. Not um, you know they're they're just not very interested in what's going on. People in general here, and I think it might take. I mean, I think it might take a crisis or something to wake people up here because it's kind of like la la land right now. We don't, we don't see the effects of what's going on in front of our faces. It's not affecting us personally yet. So a lot of people are totally asleep and, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I have to wake them up. Yes, and so with that, it sounds like your path may be relatively clear. I yeah, I know I have to totally. I I feel like right now I'm like pre-election Trump, like oh I get along with everybody and everything's fine, and then as soon as like it's gonna be like boom, okay, game's on. People are gonna love me and people are gonna hate me, so that's fine. That's better than being liked by everybody anyway. And it's got nothing to do with you anyway. No, 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 no. Nothing to do with you. No. So just <clears throat> speaking of that, um, uh, a bunch of people in the United States, in the government, were trying to prevent this handover of this sort of core DNS name function of the Internet to prevent the handover from the U.S., protected by the First Amendment, to, to other agencies, most likely under the U.N. A judge has refused the injunction. So the handover of global DNS to foreign entities occurs in um, just a little over three hours. Oh, my God. That the entire multi-decade experiment of keeping the Internet protected by the First Amendment and under the care and control of a relatively non-interventionist, largely non-interventionist U.S. government is done. And it is sailing away. The bird has been released. The power circulates now around the globe to let people get through to websites or not. And it's sort of one of these things that if you... If you're a moral relativist, if you're into multiculturalism and, you know, there are just different cultures that do things in different ways, then the demands of other people to take over the internet... How can you possibly refuse it? You know, everyone is the same. So when other people want to be treated equally, how can you possibly say no? All cultures are the same. Nobody's better than anyone else. There's just different ways of doing things. So then why would you not want to hand over control of the internet 
to a conglomerate basket case of true deplorables like, I don't know, North Korea, China, Russia even, why would you not want to hand all this over? Because remember, all cultures are the same, so what right would you ever have to say no? But if you go around the world, come back to, say, America, and its unique protection of free speech in the world, in history, human beings around 150,000 years all over the globe, one country has a First Amendment, has a guaranteed protection, constitutional protection of free speech. One country in all of human history. So unless you're going to stand there and say, I'm sorry, China, as far as free speech goes, you suck. Sorry, Saudi Arabia, as far as free speech goes, you suck. You're terrible. So no, of course we're not going to hand it over. And this is the result of rather than reforming the NSA, so I don't know, it obeys the law and doesn't spy on everyone, particularly foreign leaders, rather than reform the NSA. We see, but that would be to shrink government power. What they want to do is hand over this grand treasure of the internet to all of the foreign regimes and all of the non-Western cultures and all of the non-Greek-influenced Christian cultures, Renaissance, Enlightenment, Classical liberal, free market, free speech. John Milton's Areopagitica, read it. It's fantastic. Defense of free speech, hundreds of years ago. We studied it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this incredible space to speak, unique in human history, is only visible and available to people who have some goddamn values in their head that aren't just some goopy, everyone, everything. You know, low-quality people can't figure out for the life of them what quality is. Multiculturalism, this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is that idiots can't tell skill, basically. People who aren't good at things don't know when people are good at things. And that makes sense. I don't know a good surgeon from a bad surgeon just by watching them. I don't know. A really good surgeon really does because they know what they're talking about. Multiculturalism is the ultimate Dunning-Kruger effect. It's people who are fundamentally idiots not being able to differentiate a healthy and vibrant and moral culture from a degenerate totalitarian non-culture. Right? Culture is voluntary. When it's government, it's propaganda. So people in the world who say, well, you know, the cultures are just different ways of doing things, well... I guess they're never going to have a controversial thought, are they? They're never going to say anything that anyone's going to find upsetting. So what the hell do they care about free speech? See, free speech is all about people saying stuff that is pretty horrible <laughs> to a lot of people. You know, here's my recipe for cheesecake. That does not require free speech. You could do that in Soviet Russia. You could do that in communist China. You could probably even do that in North Korea if they had any ingredients for cheesecake. But it's when you say stuff that a lot of people find incredibly horrible. One guy finding horrible, two guys, 50 guys, 50,000 guys. No, when a significant portion of the population finds what you're saying absolutely horrible, offensive, shocking, enraging, that's when you need free speech. You don't need a giant crusader shield when people are only throwing Nerf balls at you. But when there are real arrows coming down, that's when you need the shield. And so very quickly, very quickly, surprisingly fast, we are going to find out 
just how valued the concept of free speech is in other places in the world. And I can tell you this, it is not going to be fun. It is not going to be pretty. And we are going to finally understand, and maybe this is what is needed for us to finally understand the value and the glory and the beauty and the, the foundation of civilization is free speech. Because we all have disagreements. We all have to make decisions, sometimes collectively, sometimes individually. We all have disagreements, but we all have to make decisions. And the only way that we can do this peacefully is through free speech, through reason, through evidence, through a public discourse. May the best argument, may the best speaker, may the best evidence win. And when that is abandoned, when free speech is no longer sacred and at the heart of our civil discourse, well, we still have to make decisions, sometimes collectively. So what happens? What happens is government coercion, disappearances, lives destroyed. What happens is propaganda and threats of violence and the chilling effect that is not felt by the majority of people who have nothing of interest to say to the world. You can talk about the weather anywhere. <laughs> you can talk about... You can't having worms anywhere. But if you want to talk about things that are shocking and essential and moral and upsetting, because we all know that there are bad people in this world. There are bad people in society. Hell, there may even be bad people in your street. And when you speak virtue, when you speak the power and glory of goodness and consistency and universality and philosophy and morality, and the senses and reason and evidence, metaphysics, epistemology, politics, voluntarism. All those who use the cover-up of force called the state to prey upon the productive, whose con you expose through language. Language is like this water vapor in the line of a laser. You don't see the laser. There it is. There is the laser. Philosophy is like the water that shows the weapon. People don't see it, then they see it. Now, the whole point of people who want to use that weapon is to keep it invisible to the general population, which means it can't ever be talked about, it can't ever be shown, it can't ever be referenced even in absence. We can't talk even that much about the free market because that, by implication, talks about the coercion of the state. Mm -hmm. And so... When people profit off the hiding of the weaponized philosophy called the state, the weaponized ideology called the state, they do not want free speech. When people profit from lies, from propaganda, from indoctrination, from the cover-up of the crime that they wish to commit in the name of society, the common good, whatever, Free speech is their enemy because when their supposed benevolence is revealed as tangible malevolence, which can only be done with words, that is when the con breaks. And words have been used to expose the coercive nature of elements in society for thousands of years. And this battle between words and weapons has been going on for thousands of years. And I think we really, really, really just lost big time. All right. 
Thank you very much for your call. I appreciate it. Let's move on to the next caller. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you. All right, up next we have Gary. Gary wrote in and said, How do you ignore the lack of evidence for evolution and disregard both the philosophical shortcomings of atheism and the scientific and mathematical impossibilities of evolution? You mentioned Jesus as a fairy tale character. What logic do you use to ignore the insurmountable evidence that supports his life and resurrection? Finally, how do you support a worldview that totally negates all your other positions regarding individual rights, non-aggression, and free will, etc., etc.? Respectfully and thank you. That is from Gary. Hello, Gary. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing quite well, sir. How are you? Uh, could have been better with better news about the internet, but uh, let's focus on your question okay. for now. Okay. Uh, like I said, there was a million different directions I could go with them. You know, nine times out of ten, um, as on the libertarian limited government view, um, I agree with you, and that's how I got turned on to your show. Um, but I kind of feel like uh, ignoring all the evidence and what we know to be true negates all of your other philosophical positions. Um, obviously, you are an atheist, correct? Yes. Okay. Are you a strong atheist? Yes. Okay. Can you know all things? Is that a rhetorical device? I don't know what that no, means. No, I'm asking you a question. Can you know all things? Well, no, I. it's an annoying question because you know the answer to that. So this is know. a rhetorical I, I device that has to, already got me off put it in the conversation. I know the answer to is there a God too, and you know that, but you take the negative on it. So I'm asking you, can you know all things? I'm not going to answer a, a silly question because no, if no, you're no, saying, am I God? Of course I'm not God. Okay. Are you saying, am I omniscient? Of course I'm not omniscient. Okay, so you can't know all things. So then right. you cannot know if there's a God for certain, because you cannot know all things. That's a false dichotomy. No, it's not a false dichotomy. If you cannot know all things, then you cannot know for certain that there's a God or not. Well, I mean, are you going to make a case, or are you just going to repeat stuff? I'm I'll, curious. I'm, I'm going to make a case, but you would acknowledge that, if you, that a person cannot know all things, correct? No human being can know all things. So you cannot know for certain if there's a God. So that would at best make you agnostic, correct? Not an atheist. No, that's uh, completely incorrect. That is if not if you say, okay, but you look, dude, you can't just say stuff and pretend you've made an argument, right? Just repeating things, uh, it, it doesn't repeat? make, Are if we're going to have a conversation, questions? let's have a conversation let's like philosophers a... and not like dogmatists, okay? Okay, let's have a conversation. Okay. So let me ask you this. Yep. If I don't know all things, mm -hmm. is it fair to say I know that two and two do not make five. That's fair, because you can prove two and two make four. So that's fair. Okay. So just because I don't know all things doesn't mean that I can't know anything. Correct. But you okay. can't know all so things. So if it is possible that the question of the existence of God lies more in the realm of two and two making five, then I absolutely can claim to know that God does not exist without claiming that I know everything about everything anyway. Right. But obviously all cultures... From the beginning of, of recorded history, all acknowledge a God. Now, no, 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 um, no. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's 99%. Now, you're going off in a different, this is not how we have a discussion. Okay. You're going off in some completely different direction. I, feel I like just made are. an argument which we need to deal with well, I made before one we go too, off into old cultures, bloody, bloody, blah, blah, right? I made an argument, too, that you cannot know all things, therefore you cannot know for certain that there's a God or not. And then you I just rebutted that argument. No, you didn't. By saying that if God is in the realm of logical impossibility, in other words, two and two making five, 
or something being a circle and a square at the same time, if God is in the realm of logical impossibility, then I certainly can claim to know that there's no such thing uh, as a God without having to have, uh, without having to fulfill claims of omniscience. Now, we can then, we can discuss that further, but I'm not going off into some completely other direction about different cultures. Well, that, that, that was the direction. If, if you read the question, it was a philosophical argument, correct? Now, your, your philosophy automatically has a hole in it because we all know that there's a God and everyone acknowledges that, right? It, it's then, no, no, no. That's called begging the question. It's not. The, the question we are trying to figure out is, is there a God? Correct. So you can't well, say, well, everyone already knows there is a God. Okay, so we can go scientifically, we can go morally. I'll, I'll let you direct the question now because you're not going to answer my question of can you know all things. So I'll let you pick the direction that you want to go with it, and I'll, I'll destroy your argument any way that you want to go. Do you want to go scientifically? Do you want to go logically? Do you want to go morally? Which direction do you Okay, uh, why don't you give me a definition of a deity first and foremost? Okay, uh, an all-knowing being who created the heavens and earth. How about that? Can we, can we start with that? An all-knowing, an all-knowing being that created the heavens and earth, and is the all-knowing being omniscient as well? Oh yes, yes, yes. Okay, so we've got all-knowing, and we have uh, omniscient. Yes. Okay, and when you say that this being exists, what do you uh, mean by existence? He created the world. And no, no, no. That's that's no. You have to presuppose existence in order for him to have the capacity to create the world. So, what do you mean? Like, so if if I say an object exists, I mean it's detectable by the senses or something which translates something into the senses, like infrared. Or so I can either perceive it directly or indirectly, or I can perceive its effects, like something like gravity or whatever. So there's a definition of existence that I can work within the physical realm. And so I'm just questioning what your definition is of existence. What? Something that, but what's my definition of the word existence? Well, you're using it. You're saying God exists, right? Correct. And so I want to know what your definition, I've got your definition of God, which I appreciate, but I need okay. to know what your definition of existence is. Existing is to be there in one form or another or all forms is to be present, is to exist. It's kind of a bizarre question. You wouldn't answer. No, it's not a bizarre question. If, you, if you're saying that something exists, I need to know what existence means right so if i say to you dragons exist hang on hang on if i if i say to you dragons exist and then you say to me well where and i say well in my nightly dreams okay well then they exist quote in my dreams but they don't exist in the empirical world right so knowing what existence is is really important right so people say well the government exists and i say no it doesn't right it's a concept in people's heads and it's buildings and so on but the government itself doesn't I completely exist we agree with yes that's amazing okay so it's not a weird question to ask for a definition of existence when you're trying to say something exists right Look, the government exists on paper only right like a corporation exists on paper only it's only worth what yeah. we make it worth okay fine okay so when you're talking about god you're saying god exists so your definition of existence is that it is detectable in some manner, uh, it is uh, tangible, or or uh, we can find some way to determine its existence or non-existence. Is that, h- how would we know? Yeah, I, I'll accept that as a definition, sure. Okay. So, how do we know? Okay. Um, based upon, you said he has to be there, right? So, there's a there, obviously somewhere in the equation, some sort of tangible way of determining the existence of something. So, how do we know that... Uh, something like God exists. 
Okay, can we start with uh, you want to go scientifically, or do you want to go morally or ethically? How do you, how do you want to how do you want to lose? I, I, I'd rather start with scientifically. I okay. think that's going to be the most fruitful. Let me uh, let me let me make a quote here. I'm going to read directly from the quote. I have it written down. Just give me a second. Okay, uh, leading NASA scientist, well, former leading NASA scientist and founder of the and director of the Goddard Institute, Robert Jastrow, an agnostic and non-believer, said, um, if there is a beginning, there is a crater. Uh, Jastrow, probably our best astronomer, said, uh, astronomers now find themselves painted, uh, they have found themselves painted in a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in the cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this has happened as a product of forces that, can, that they cannot hope to discover. That uh, they are what I, what is, or anyone would call supernatural forces. I'll read that again because I stumbled. Uh, that they are what is, or anyone else would call supernatural forces at work. I think, a I think this is a scientifically proven fact. Uh, so I guess my question to you is, uh, what? Uh, hang on, hang on. Sorry, I'm not sure. So there are some scientists who believe that because this is the um, well, not some scientists, the best astronomer we had probably ever. So uh, you know, well, no, but the hearsay. Look, I mean, science. lots of scientists have said things that have proven to be incorrect yeah, right, in but the past. Right? The, sorry, sorry, dude, 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 dude. <laughs> Are we both going to talk at the same time? Because if if so, I'm not going to have the conversation. You off in the middle of my question, did you not? Well, you said here's the scientific proof. So we, did really you have more to say then, other than I, the scientific proof you had just read? Okay, you want to respond to it or you want me to ask my question? I, either way. I thought you were giving me a, a scientific argument, which I was rebutting. Okay. If you have another question, I'm confused to what we're doing. But go ahead. If you have a question, probably, go ahead. I read a quote from probably the best astronomer in the history of the world. And then I was going to ask you a follow-up question about that quote. And the quote is basically the argument that if the universe exists something must have created it and that something that must have created it is god as per the greatest uh, astronomer in the history of the world yes All well I, I i could care less what you call him and look you it's you are, you I understand that calls him. i mean not sorry look first of all first of all 95 percent <laughs> of people in the royal uh, scientific society uh, in england are atheists right so if you're going to start um if you're going to start quoting scientists uh, as as some sort of proof uh, some science okay i'm still talking you're right so if you're going to start quoting scientists then we're going to end up in a war of quotes and atheist scientists are going to win just based on their prevalence right so a scientist says is not a proof you understand that scientists in the past thought that the world was flat scientists well, in the past thought that the world was the center of the universe not just the solar system right uh, scientists in the past believed in something called ether which doesn't seem to exist right so right the right idea there. that a scientist said something and therefore that is a metaphysical proof of a deity is not an argument now can i, can I stop right there can i stop you right there and, and, and jump and jump in on what you just said about the flat earth and uh and that um 600 uh, before Christ, the book of Isaiah was written. Can we agree on that? I, I don't know, but I, I, I'll accept what you say. Okay. In Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 22, it describes the earth as spherical and the circuit of the earth, meaning how the earth rotates in the solar system. 600 AD written in Isaiah. 
prove that. What do you? How do you rebut that? Well, the, the proof of the, the the proof that the Earth was a sphere was known to the ancient Egyptians. I mean, this is not new you to to the Bible. The Earth was flat in 1492. Columbus sailed the ocean, thinking the world was, you know, not being believed. The world was thinking the world was flat. So, in 600 AD, we were told not only is the world a spherical, it also has a circuit in the solar system. I, I explain that in 600 AD, if, if it's wasn't scientifically thought to be garbage. Well, no, I mean, there are some scientists, like there are scientists who disagree on the existence of God, and there were, I'm sure, were some scientists who disagreed uh, on whether the sun or the earth was the center of the solar system. What I'm saying is that scientists disagree. Now, you couldn't quote a scientist who said the earth is the center of the solar system and think that that's proof, any more than you could quote a scientist who said that the sun is the center of the solar system and consider that proof. You have to actually go through the proof rather than pick the expert who agrees with you and think that you've done anything other than uh, an argument from hearsay. He doesn't agree with me. He's an agnostic, so he doesn't agree with me. I, I don't agree with him. That's what I'm saying. I don't agree with this man. He's an agnostic. I'm a Christian. I don't agree with him. I'm simply quoting the best astronomer in the history of our country. That's all I was doing. I, I hope that that makes sense, right? Like, Wait, so if, if, if the, what poet, you're saying is that if the best astronomer in the history of the country had said that there's no such thing as a god, you'd quote him as well and consider him an authority? He, did, he didn't say that because this is what an intelligent... No, but if he did... ...who looks at the evidence... Right. If you look at the evidence, he didn't say there was a God. He said this was created. And, and from a logical perspective, from a philosophical perspective, if something was created, it must have a creator, no? If something was – sorry, if something is created, if is it must created, have a creator. There must be a creator. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, this is the, the watch argument, right? This is an old argument, which doesn't mean that it's invalid, but it's an old argument for those who don't know, which is to say if you find a watch, like a, a, a pocket watch or a, a, you find a watch in a jungle, you don't think that the jungle just accidentally put it together, right? You have something that specifically has been created for a purpose with moving parts and, and precision and, and all this kind of stuff. You wouldn't look at that and say – well, this must have just come about by coincidence or this must be accidental, you would say, well, this watch must have been made by something, right? Correct. That was, right. right. Now, how does he know that the universe was created rather than spontaneously came into existence? Okay. Uh, and I'll read it again. Astronomers find themselves, they have painted, uh, astronomers find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star and every planet, every living thing in the cosmos and on Earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover, that they are what is or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Your floor. So incomprehension doesn't lead us to God, right? I mean, so let's say I don't I, I've heard arguments for and against the whole Big Bang thing anyway, but let's just say that the Big Bang is what 14 billion years ago, or 14 point something billion years ago. Let's just say that the universe came into existence or the universe was tiny and compressed and then came into existence. And I think that the people who are studying this stuff are sort of crawling back through the billionth of a second and trying to figure out what happened. But nobody knows if this approach, the Big Bang Theory, is true. Nobody knows what happened, where it came from, 
or anything like that. We, we understand that, right? Nobody has found the fingerprint of a god. Nobody's seen the blueprints. Nobody's interviewed God and said, what were you up to? So we have to accept and understand that this is whatever happened is at the moment and for the foreseeable future, I guess, completely beyond the scope of human knowledge. We, we simply don't know anything about what may have caused this event, right? Uh, for the sake of this conversation, I will agree with you. Okay. So the, then, then the correct answer is not God. The correct answer is, I don't know. Where did the universe come from? I don't know. I, I, scientists are studying I, I, it. I do know, right? So, But for the sake of this conversation, I will say, sure, I will agree with you so that we can go down this path. No, that's the end of the path. The end of the path no, is an admission. Of ignorance where we, sorry, sorry, still talking. The end of the path is the admission that we don't have knowledge, right? We, we don't have knowledge of whether, if the Big Bang Theory is true, and it remains theoretical, but if the Big Bang Theory is true, we do not have knowledge of where the universe came from, and therefore we should continue to explore. I think it's interesting. I don't think it's particularly earth-shattering, so to speak. I mean, it's not going to change what I have for breakfast tomorrow, but I think it's interesting. And um, we don't know. We don't know where the universe came from. And science may find a way to figure it out, or maybe there'll be some other theory, or may, maybe the you know, second law of thermodynamics will <laughs> give us another answer, but um, we, don't, we don't know. That, and a lack of knowledge is not evidence for the existence of God. No, I, I don't think we... Can I, can, I, can I go? Well, I wasn't interrupting you, so let's assume you can when I don't interrupt you. <laughs> Okay, because you've interrupted most of the things I said, just to be fair. Uh, I, 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 don't I don't think you want to start talking about me interrupting you when you listen back to this, but let's not fight about that. Go ahead. And, and Steve, I, I, Stefan, I'm a fan of your show, so I, I'm coming off defensive a little bit because of what you said about Jesus being a fairy tale character, but I, I am a fan of your show. And I, I want you to know I do respect your intelligence on everything except for this, and, and I, I do want you to know that. I appreciate that. Okay. All right, so go ahead. Um. Okay, so with the Jastro comment, right, um, I've quoted a hundred other scientists here. I guess you're not really going to be interested in any of that. Uh, neither is the quote from 600, uh, 600 AD about the Earth uh, being spherical and uh, wrote, uh, its circuit in throughout the universe. None of that, none of that interests you, correct? Well, I, 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 I'm skeptical of knowledge claims where no knowledge exists, and I'm willing to say we don't know where the universe came from, and that state of ignorance is something that I'm going to confess to, obviously, and everyone who's honest is going to confess to it. So I, I'm going to accept that we don't know where the universe uh, came from, as, as it stands. Okay, go back to Jastro. He said that every single thing that we have in the sky can be traced back to its seed. So I guess my question to you is, I don't mean to sound snarky here, but this is, uh, what do you know about astronomy that the best astronomer in the world does not? Well, I know that the world is not composed of seeds. I know that the universe is not composed of seeds. No, so he's you obviously can, using, sorry, sorry, was I in the middle? You're, 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 but if you're not being accurate, I, I have to step in. I can't let you get away with that. That's not really fair. You know, I, you know, did he not use did he did he not use the word seed? Was I did I mishear? Maybe I maybe my earphone is not incorrectly. Sorry, go ahead. I, I will I will I will read it back to you. Astronomers now found now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods the 
They can trace the seeds of every star, every plant, every living thing in the cosmos and on, on, on the earth. Right? So they can trace it back to its beginning origin. You're using the word seed. So he used the word seed. To its beginning, right? Because before you have a plant, you have a seed. Did he use the word seed? Yes, he did. Yes, sir. Okay. So so when I said, I, when he's using the word seed, he's using it as a sort of poetic analogy. He's not saying that the way you get a star or a sun is to plant a candle in some very rich loam and have a cow shit on it until it grows into a giant ball of flaming nuclear reaction, right? I mean, so so he's using the word seed in as an analogy, as, as you know, like the source of something. But he's not using it literally like like it was planted and it, it grew so it's it's a metaphorical way of speaking which i don't mind at all I'm, I'd, I'd like a good metaphor i think they can be very helpful so if he's if you're saying if this is this a scientific statement well of course not it's a poetic statement and what he means by that is the elements that and i've talked about this in the show before the elements that are in stars and you and me and this camera and this computer this microphone my hair like everything they all come back to common elements that were forged very early on, I would assume, in the universe uh, and maybe have gone through the centers of stars and all of that. So he's talking about like the atomic structure of matter is common throughout the universe. Uh, and uh, they can all be traced back to, I guess, in his case, some beginning explosion. But none of that has anything to do with the existence of an all-powerful omniscient deity. I, I first we were gonna first I was gonna prove the creator and then I was gonna move forward from there. As long as we know that the the Earth was created and it didn't happen by accident, then we can move forward, right? But I can't move forward with you if you're not gonna accept that. Does that make sense? Yes, and I appreciate you saying that. <clears throat> and let's say let's <laughs> say that um, there was a being who created the universe. That even if we accept that, my friend, that does not mean that we have omniscience. Correct. Like if I if I pour a glass of water, all I have to know is how to pour a glass of water. It doesn't mean that I'm a physicist. It doesn't mean that I know how to play the cello or sing falsetto beautiful, more beautifully than Freddie Mercury. It only says that I know how to pour a glass of water. And so if there was a being who created the universe, that would not, by in, in any stretch of the mind, prove that that entity had omniscience. It would prove, I guess, if we could find such an entity, that the entity had enough knowledge to create the universe. That does not mean that there's omniscience. It just means that there's proof that he had the knowledge to create the universe. It doesn't mean that he's all-powerful. Like, if I have the ability to pour a cup of water, that doesn't mean that I have the ability to lift a Mack truck, right? It just means that I'm strong enough to pour the glass of water. It doesn't mean that I can be a central tunnel support in the new Victoria line, as the old Monty Python bit goes. And so even if we did find an entity or a being or a consciousness or something that did create the universe, all we would know for sure is that that being had the knowledge to create the universe and the power to create the universe. That does not in any way prove omniscience and omnipotence. I agree. So you're no longer against the idea that the world was created by a supernatural force. Oh, no, no. I, I, I don't concede that for a moment. As I've said, which I haven't changed, the fact that we don't know the origins of the universe means that we have to say beyond that is darkness. Beyond that question, we can say nothing until we have knowledge. Like if I'm standing on one side uh, of, of the ocean looking across the ocean, and let's say it's the 13th century or something, and I'm in Spain looking across the ocean, I can't say what's on the other side of the ocean. I can speculate, I can imagine, but I cannot say with certainty because I have no knowledge. Now, after if I'm on if I'm on the 
Santa Maria or the Pinto or whatever, and I go across and I get on the, when he got confused, he thought he was in India, which is why he called the natives Indians. Okay, then I can say that. Well, we sailed this far and this is what we saw. So when we're looking across to something we don't know, we can make no knowledge claims about any of it. What is on the other side of the ocean? Looking westward from Spain in the 13th century, what can anyone say for sure? Nothing. We don't know. We can say, well, God's over there. Well, no, we can't because we don't know what is over there. And substituting imaginary knowledge for true ignorance, I think, actually just works to keep us more ignorant. But anyway, go ahead. Okay, we can't know what's over there. And, and, and let's say I agree with that statement that we can't know that God's not over there, right? So your argument is self-defeating. If you're saying we cannot know, which was my original point, which you thought was condescending, which was a legitimate question, was if we cannot know, we cannot know. That, that was your argument. So your argument obviously falls, falls flat. Like we call it the Roadrunner moment. Remember the old Roadrunner cartoons with the Roadrunner, with, 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 the coyote would run off the hill and he'd look around and see he was out of ground and, he, and he'd fall down? I mean, that, that, that's your argument. Your argument falls flat. Okay, but you, you've, you, you haven't gotten any further than we were at the beginning, Miko. And i got to tell you, my friend, calling me a cartoon coyote is, could be considered condescending. But anyway, let's move on from that. Well, no, I was saying the, the reality is of the argument where it falls flat on its face. Because no, no, because you, you're doing this little victory dance like I've just conceded something. Aha! You know, but the no. same thing. Look, I may not know if I'm standing in Spain looking across the west on the ocean. I can say, I don't know what's over there, but I know there are no square circles over there. I know that two and two don't make five over there. So I may not know for sure positively what's there, but there's a near infinity of things I know for sure aren't there. I know there are not rocks over there that are immune to the force of gravity, right? I know there's not fire that freezes water over there, right? So I don't know what is over there, but there's a near infinity of things I know are not over there. So if I say, well, I'm looking west from Spain, I don't know what's over there in the ocean, then you say, ah, well, you see, there could be a square circle over there, aha, because you said you don't know what's over there, and I'm like, no, there can't be a square circle over there, because that's impossible. We acknowledge that there could be a creator of the Earth, right? We know that there could be some supernatural force that created the Earth, okay? So (laughs) that supernatural creator could be God. So if we're acknowledging that there could be a supernatural creator, well, then there could be a God. doesn't necessarily mean there's a God, but it could mean there's a God. And since we can't know all things, we can't know for sure that that supernatural creator is not a God. Well, now you know what I need to ask you next, right? <laughs> sure. Uh, I, I think I know. Why don't you ask me just to make sure I'm uh, going down the right path here? So, Gary, what is your definition of supernatural? Okay, that's a little more difficult to put in the words. A uh, a miracle maker of sorts, a, a I'll call it a spirit, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a spirit. A a spirit that is all knowing uh, that performs miracles that cannot be explained by the laws of physics or biology or, or anything else. So supernatural is outside of reality. Outside of the natural. Well, outside of sensual, tangible, objective reality, right? Not objective reality, outside of natural materialism. So you're saying that there's an objective reality outside of materialism? Correct. 
And we and how yes. do we know that? Well, we're, we're born with that, right? That comes from conscience. That comes from intelligence. That comes from morality. That comes from a number of things. That's not, not an argument, right? Yes, if you're is. saying that there's an existence of a realm outside of matter and energy, then you need to establish that, right? Because non-existence is that which does not show up as matter or energy, right? That's the definition of non-existence, okay. is something which does not show up in the universe as matter or energy. And so if you're going to say, well, there's an other realm where non-existence is exactly the same as existence, then you're formulating a contradiction. You're saying that non-existence, no. which is not showing up as matter or energy, non-existence is exactly the same as existence. But I've got an alternative realm where that is real. And, and But creating an alternative realm where the opposite of something becomes somehow true or the antonym of something becomes a synonym – is not an argument. You're just creating a realm where whatever you say magically becomes true because it's opposite world. No, that's how evolution works. Now, l let me try this other thing. Wait, wait, that, what? what? That's how, that's no, hang on, what? Macro, that's how macro evolution works. Now, let me try this other thing. No, 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 I don't, I don't know what that means. You can't just drop something like that in and run off to the next topic. What does that mean? Well, th th there's no, you know, to believe in macro evolution is to believe that we date the fossil by the rock and the rock by the fossil and have complete circular reasoning and that we have to have two plus two to get to five and anything that shows two plus two gets to four, we have to throw out so that two plus two always equals five. And that way we can always have a perfect score of five because two plus two equals five when we know two plus two equals four. But for the sake of macroevolution, we need to disregard that, right? So that that's what I meant by Wait, that. Wait, are you saying, sorry, are you saying that, that biologists who propose particular aspects of evolution have as their foundation a supernatural realm where the opposite of evolution occurs, but they call it evolution anyway. We know that, okay, macro so there's microevolution and macroevolution, right? And, and wait, 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 sorry, are we, I mean, I, I put a counter for, I, I, we just, I feel like I'm grabbing a bar of soap here. I, I, <laughs> Not I, I'm right thing, with you, right? So, so I, I made an argument about you can't just say that non-existence equals existence and create an alternative realm, and now we're going into macroevolution. But right, I think you need to kind of address that argument first, because yeah. if we start talking about evolution, then we're in some other different topic completely. Right, which I did before you cut me off, and I'd love to address that if you give me just a moment. Right, so... There's microevolution and macroevolution, right? There's two different types. No, of no. I'm not talking about evolution with you, Gary. I want you to address evolution. the argument I made that you can't create an opposite realm where contradictions magically become true and then think that you've done something. That's not what I did, though. So, you, you know what I'm saying? You're taking a presupposition that is wrong and then applying it universally. I, that's not what I did. So, you, your question is kind of like when are you going to stop beating your wife? You know, I was like, what? No, that's not what I did. Okay, let me. I asked you to define existence, and you said the supernatural right, exists in the supernatural realm. The supernatural realm is another dimension where something can exist without showing up as matter or energy in the sensual realm, like in the realm of materialism, right? You said that. I, I have a, a, a whole heap of, of evidence here that I can read off to you one after another that that, that kind of proves my point. Okay, well, if I've... No, I don't, don't want you to read off evidence. So... Right, of course you don't. I wouldn't want that either. No, because we're, this is a philosophy show, not a read other people's stuff show, right? Not, so we should be able to debate these issues from first principles not. without, okay. you know, hearsay of who said what, right? No, this is... This so is let's go back to supernatural, right? Because you have 
a being or an entity that exists in a supernatural realm. In other words, it exists in a way that cannot be detected in the material realm. Is that fair to say? Incorrect. It can be detected. Okay. Then, then sorry, if I got it wrong, please help me get it right. Okay. Like I said, through intelligence, through morality, it can all be. See, this can only come from one place. No matter how many times you, you, you screw two monkeys, you're not going to come up with, with morality. You're not going to come up with human ethics or intelligence or conscience. That only comes from one place. Right? I can rub two pens together forever and have some explosion, and that's not going to create intelligence. So that's the supernatural imposing his will on the natural. I'm still trying to figure out that, like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound, sound flippant, but uh, I just got to tell you that I wrote a whole book on, on secular ethics, and I really should just have had a flip, a flip page of two monkeys having sex. But anyway, that's just, <laughs> that's reversion too. Okay. So what you're saying is, if I understand this correctly, that we see the effects of the supernatural realm in the existence of morality in the material realm? Correct. Okay, so does morality exist in the material realm? Yes. Does it exist like a tree exists? Does it exist like a tree? Can you be a little bit more specific than what you mean by that? I think I know what you mean by that, but I want to be... Well, there are things that exist in the real world that we can touch and, you know, like you walk into a tree, you hurt your nose, right? There are things that, like there are four coconuts, right? right? You see the coconuts, Mm -hmm. but the number four is a concept that we have in our head. Right. Right, so I'm just trying to figure out if morality exists like a coconut or like the number four in our head. No, it, it exists like a coconut or a tree. Okay, so it's detectable, morality is detectable. Correct. In some material ma- method. Correct. Oh, great. If you can prove this to me, I I will bow at your feet and, and rewrite everything I've done. So how can we detect the existence of morality through the evidence of the senses? Like like a, a thing that tangibly exists, like a rock or a tree. So if you're being raped or a woman is being raped, you don't detect that that's wrong. You don't detect that that's a violation of your of your persons. I, I thought that's what we, what you were getting at. Or if you're being well, the rapist sure as hell doesn't believe that he's he, that it's wrong because he wants to do it, right? It's no, right I'm for him. About, I'm talking about the, the 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 one being raped. She knows that this is a violation of her. So I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I think that your answer to that question is both, but. I can go either way with this, right? If, if if you're getting shot in the head or, or or a woman is being raped or you're being. Oh, hello. Oh, do we lose him? Right. Or, or, uh, right I'm sorry. Now. I just, I just lost you for a sec. So go ahead with the, if I'm being raped or if someone's being raped, if, if I'm being raped or someone is shooting me in the head or, or, or I'm being uh, sodomized unwillingly, whatever, I know that that's wrong. I know that that's a violation of me. Or am I misinterpreting your question? Well, feeling that something is wrong. No, knowing it's wrong. Okay, knowing that something is wrong, I don't think that that makes it exist in reality in the way that a tree does. Certainly your subjective experience is that it's wrong, but I don't know that it makes it that that feeling of wrongness, I, it, it's something that is occurring within your mind, within your emotions, within your nervous system, but I don't know that it makes it exist in the way that a tree does, right? Then why do you have a fight-or-flight instinct if, if that's not true? 
Well, well if you have cool. if a fight or flight instinct is indicative of morality, then we're back to the monkeys, right? Monkeys have a fight or flight mechanism as well. Does that mean that they have morality? Well, what I'm saying, okay, the monkeys have a morality. I'm not. I, I don't think so. They may have some morality, but not not to the level of human beings. You know, you'd have to ask a zoologist. I'm not really qualified to answer that question, and I, I wouldn't. Good. Well, I'm glad we came up against some boundary of knowledge. Now, I, I mean, the reason why we have a fight or flight mechanism, as far as I understand it, is because we need a very quick and compelling emotional biochemical motivator to act in ways that preserve our life, preserve our genes, preserve our capacity to reproduce or to take care of our children or grandchildren or whatever. So we have a fight or flight mechanism because having a fight or flight mechanism is very good for the transmission of our genes. Or to put it another way, animals with a diminished or non-existent fight or flight mechanism would not have survived to reproduce their genes. Uh, and therefore, the genes that did not contribute to the fight or flight mechanism would have been weeded out of the gene pool fairly quickly. I mean, the, 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 the bunny that goes up to give the fox a hug uh, doesn't have hug fox genes go to the next generation. Well, my argument is that morality is an abstraction, universally preferable behavior. It doesn't exist in reality. It exists as concepts within our mind, which doesn't mean that it's subjective. It doesn't mean that it's arbitrary. I mean, mathematics doesn't exist in the real world. Things do, but numbers don't. But that doesn't mean that mathematics is subjective or arbitrary. The scientific method doesn't exist in the real world, but that doesn't mean that science is subjective or arbitrary or whatever. So uh, as far as morality goes, that is a capacity for human beings, uh, our, our amazing ability for our brain to conceptualize, to abstract, to universalize things, which is why, you know, we can send a probe all the way to Jupiter. Uh, and um, so I think that morality is a philosophical discipline. I don't think it exists in reality. And I don't think that it proves the existence of a deity. Uh, okay. Um, how about, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go with a conscience then. Uh, we all have a conscience. Um, no, we don't have a conscience. No, we don't all have a conscience. All human beings have a conscience. No. Can you give me one in history that didn't have a conscience? I, I as far as I understand it, sociopaths and psychopaths and so on, uh, do not, uh, have uh, a conscience as, as we would understand it. That, 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 <laughs> not from any understanding that I have, they just don't respond to it. They no, don't. no, they, 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 like a sadist, for instance, sorry to interrupt, but a sadist, when, like, you and I, being, like, decent, morally sensitive people, if um, uh, if we see a video of someone being tortured, you know, it's repulsive. Like, I, I, I don't even watch violence in, in movies or television anymore. I could just either stop the movie or fast forward. Or I can't watch it. It's, it's grotesque. It's horrible, particularly since I've become a father. But you can show some people pictures of, of literal torture they believe is genuine torture – and the happy part of their brain lights up. Like, they love it. It makes them happy. Uh, it's a, a run through a spring fields of meadows. Uh, I'll only have a field of tops of wheat, <laughs> right? And, and they, they don't have the same emotional reaction. Uh, there are people that you show horrifying images to. They're completely indifferent. There's no distress. I mean, they've done pretty deep brain scans of people and their responses. And there definitely does seem to be some significantly uh, different wiring uh, across uh, across the species. Now, they're rare, as far as I understand it, but they're definitely there. Uh, if, if you could, uh, your, your producer or whoever has uh, 
my email if, if you could provide me with because I'm being honest with you I've done a, a little bit of research quite a bit of research actually I, I've, I've never seen that I, I've never seen that someone had no response to anything I've, I have not seen that so if I could be ignorant here uh, but I, I through all my study which you know, it's not professionally, it's, it's amateur, but uh, I, I... Well, as is mine, yeah. <laughs> I, I've never come across that. I've never come across a, a human being whose brain responds to nothing. Well, I've done a uh, an interview with uh, Robert Hare, who talks about this. There's a book called The Sociopath Next Door that I think has some of this stuff in it. Um, we'll see if we can dig stuff up over the course of the show, but if we can't, we'll definitely send you um, some uh, sources, but... Um, yeah, there are people who's uh, who's. If you Google sociopaths no conscience, you get a bunch of stuff. Do you, do you want to pick one, Mike, and give us a quick skim? Actually, one of the first things you get is Robert Hare's page for, on the study of sociopaths. Yeah, this is the guy. Is interesting because if I remember this guy correctly, he's the guy who actually be- he became a great studier of, of sociopaths. But he himself tested positive for sociopathy traits, but he had a really loving and kind family, if I remember rightly. And therefore, he thinks he's, that saved him from going down the route of a lot of uh, other sociopaths who end up with slightly less socially productive uh, endeavors. All right. So here we go. This is from dailymail.co.uk. I'm not going to read the whole thing out, of course. But uh, psychopaths aren't just mentally different. Their brains are physically deformed to prevent them feeling fear or guilt. Uh, psychopaths such as Hannibal Lecter, Anthony Hopkins' character in this film Silence of the Lambs are callous, antisocial, and sometimes violent. They are incapable of feeling empathy or guilt. Uh, 1% of the population at large generally uh, reckon to be psychopathic. Up to 20% of the pr- prison population is psychopathic. Uh, one in 25 business leaders may be uh, psychopathic. Uh, and um, let's see here. New research has uncovered that manipulative callous and sometimes violent behavior could actually be hardwired in psychopaths from birth. The disorder is untreatable, and this discovery could unlock new ways to understand and perhaps even treat the disorder. American researchers took a magnetic resonance imaging scanner to a medium security prison in Wisconsin and scanned the brains of 40 prisoners uh, in doing time for similar offenses, half of whom had been diagnosed with psychopathy. Results of the study revealed both structural and functional abnormalities in the brains of psychopaths with scientists finding there was less communication between two key areas of their brains than the other prisoners. The first of these structures, known as the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, is responsible for emotions, including empathy and guilt. The second, called the amygdala, which actually features quite uh, prominently in The Bomb in the Brain, which you can find a big mag in my opus of mine, thebombinthebrain.com. Um... The second called the amygdala controls levels of fear and anxiety. It is thought the lack of communication between these two areas makes it difficult for psychopaths to regulate their social and emotional behavior. Um, yeah, a study author said the two structures seem not to be communicating as they should. There was evidence not only of physical differences in white matter, but of electrical activity in the areas connecting the two. And uh, we'll, of course, put this... Um, on the link and there's lots and lots of stuff to figure out i don't know how they get from this study to it is from birth right and i've i've had arguments uh uh uh, a lot of arguments about this so gary from your perspective one of the things that that i would argue you know sort of try and get your um view of things 
Uh, you can go to hair.org, H-A-R-E.org, hair.org slash references. So he's got tons and tons of stuff to, to read on this further. Now, if I understand the Christian perspective, they would say, well, we're all born with a conscience, but if you do enough bad things, you you basically kill your capacity for empathy and you end up as this kind of person, but that's the result of the choices that you've made to do bad things and you've become irredeemable, um, but that is not because you were born that way, that is because of bad choices or, or immoral things that, that you've done that have left you in this kind of state of mind. Is, is, is that where you might be coming from? That's 99% correct, except for the part where you said irredeemable. Besides that, everything was correct. You're never irredeemable until you're dead. But besides that, everything okay. that you said, yes, I, that 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 is generally the position of most evangelical Christians like myself. Yes, right. They're not a Calvinist, so, right? But yes, people like myself. Yeah, not a Calvinist, right? There's now this predestination stuff, and only a certain number of people get into heaven, and all that, right? Right. So, and and I, I think you and I, I mean, that my default position is that I think that people are born with particular susceptibilities to traumas as a child, and, and that is not even my opinion that we talk about in The Bomb and the Brain, that there are certain children with a particular gene set that I think it's 100% of them who were exposed to significant violence as children end up becoming criminals. That doesn't mean everyone who's exposed to violence as a child becomes a criminal. So I think that there are certain genetic susceptibilities to a life of crime, which is why I talk about peaceful parenting and all the stuff that I'm sure you and I would agree with uh, very, very heartily. Um, but I don't, you know, the idea that to me, a, a bro this is a broken brain. And to me, somebody saying, well, this is just the way someone was born. Um, it's sort of like saying, I broke my arm. Well, my arm is broken. You say, well, how did you break your arms? Like, I didn't. It's like, well, no, something must, <laughs> something must have happened, right? Yeah. It didn't break on its own. So, um, I think that there certainly are some indicators at the moment that there are people who don't have a functioning conscience as adults. I don't know how they've proven, if they even have, that people are or kids are born that way. Um, and again, even if they're born that way, my question is, did something happen in the womb? Was there trauma? Was there alcohol? Was there drug use? Was there cigarette use? Was there anything that might have happened in the womb that might have done something to the brain? Uh, but um, I don't know that everyone, as an adult, certainly it doesn't seem physically the case that everyone has the same level of empathy or conscience uh, across the, the population. That, 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 again, uh, that, that is something that we would agree, agree 100% on. Um, I don't know if you want to move on to this other thing. I know this is cool. It's going on a little bit. If you want to move on to the existence of Jesus or where morality comes from and, or, or how it applies to your limited government, uh, non-aggressive. Let's, let's, do, let's do if we can, because I've, I've had a lot of, of talking here. So let's do if we can, uh, Gary, where morality comes from, because you, you and I, again, we, we're talking about differences here. You know, if we take the different paths to the same place, I still consider us brothers in spirit um, because I think that you and I would, would both agree, you know, murder and, and rape and assault and theft, that all of these are moral crimes that uh, need to be strenuously resisted and pointed out and highlighted by good people and universalized and that the state uh, often interferes or by its definition may always interfere between choice and conscience that human beings need to have as the maximum possible amount of choices in order to achieve virtue forcing someone to do something uh, to, to 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 forcing someone to be good strips their action of any morality so the free will, the, the, the desire for voluntarism in the world, the desire for peaceful negotiations between differences. You and I, I'm positive, would share these completely. And I just 
before you get onto where morality gets to, I want to point out, A, really enjoyed the conversation, and B, um, if we have ended up in the same place through different methodologies, I still consider us friends. So uh, if you want to give me the big speech, uh, and I really do want to hear the speech on where morality comes from, I'd be thrilled to hear. Uh, I think, you know, we've both been around the block a few times. I don't think uh, this is the first rodeo of this debate for either of us. Am I correct on that? I think you may be. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, like I said, we would both agree on it is wrong to use any force against any other person at any time, right? Mm. I mean, Only in self-defense, oh, but correct. you cannot initiate force. Yeah. The initiation of force, correct. Yeah. I would even go as a father that it's wrong to initiate physical force against my child, but that's a different conversation for another day, and I know most Christians are not going to agree with me on that, but I, I, I don't spank my child. I don't lock my child in a room because it is wrong to initiate force, and I don't want him to ever think that it's okay to initiate force against peaceful people. But, right. okay, um, now, voluntarism is always better than force, right? Because Jesus gave yes. us a free will, right? So it is always better for me to freely help a homeless person than for the state to stick a gun in my head, take my money, and give it to the homeless person, right? If person A is cold and he's walking down the street and he puts a gun to someone's head and takes his coat, that's called theft with a, with a, with a dangerous weapon, correct? If the yes. government does it, it's charity. <laughs> it's 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 common 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 good things for the social goodness. I don't know what they call it, but they they don't call it theft. Is which what it is. So morality does not come from the state, correct? Correct. Okay. In fact, immorality general flows from the state. We are hitting, we are connecting one hundred percent. So if yep. if all cultures can agree that things like rape, uh, murder, um, theft outside of government theft for some reason, if these things are, are wrong and, and all cultures can generally agree on that, how did that come into existence if that wasn't hardwired, literally hardwired into us from some other form? Where, where does the, the absolute right and wrong of let's rape come from? Well, I mean, I, I, I've, I've had arguments about the arguments for various uh, answers to this, but um, I, I want you to keep going with your argument, Gary, because I'm just really enjoying the fact that you don't hit your kids. kids. So, yay, good for you. I mean, that, that's, that's, that, that makes me, me, me kiss, kiss the church of you uh, in ways that probably shouldn't be seen in public. But um, uh, why don't you go on with the, 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 the case for, um, for morality, and uh, I'll, I'll let you get it across to me and to the audience. Okay. I'll, I'll call it our, our creator, or in my case, God, has built that into us, that every person has a conscience of what is right and wrong. And if you act out that morality, your life will be far better. You will live better than not practicing that morality. That's how we know that it's true, right? We know that sex should be held within God's domain, which is between one married man and one married woman in the bed of holy matrimony. If you go outside of that, you get STDs. Uh, which which can kill you. You can get single single parents, which I'm sure you've seen the evidence on how how da damning that is to both boys and girls. Um, you get divorce. You, you get you know. Uh, then you have to pay alimony and support, so it's financially bad for you. It's bad for you in every single way, right? If you step outside of God's domain on something like like sex, um, you know, it, it, if you step out of God's domain in in private property rights, meaning you steal from someone. 
then no one has any property rights, and then you're going to get murder and, 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 and chaos and everything else, right? So we all know that certain things are wrong. And if we, if we push away the things that we know are wrong and accept the things that we know are right, life will be better for everyone. Um, if there were no single parents, I, I know that some people are, you know, some people die young. And, well, those are widows, right? right? Single moms and widowhood is not the same thing, but go ahead. Right. But we know if, if there were no single moms from birth, and I'm not talking about people who get divorced, you know, when their kids are 15, but single moms, you know, from the time their kids are very, very small, we would have a much better society. Can you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. We, 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 the single, the, the sex outside of marriage also gives us the welfare state, which is a disaster too. Which is theft, right? If we didn't, yeah. if uh, we didn't have, you know, and you're free to practice homosexuality, but if we didn't have that, we'd have a much lo lower rate of AIDS, correct? Yes, uh, certainly uh, AIDS spread uh, significantly faster through the homosexual community and never really seemed to make the leap over, despite what a lot of liberals said, and never seemed to make the leap over to the straight community. Here in the U.S., the, the gay male population is uh, about 2%, and they make up about 61% of all new HIV and AIDS cases. Um, again, I think we both agree that you're free to pursue any type of lifestyle that you want, but th there are consequences to, to your actions. Um, you know, obviously, if there was no theft or no murder or no adultery or... or life would be better. You would have a more prudent life. Life would be better for everyone. So by following these simple truths that God has hardwired into all of us, we would all live a more prosperous, more fruitful life. Um, to me, it's evident that that morality comes from God because basically everyone has that. And I know there are other cultures where men have 12 wives, but those wives still can only have sex with that man, meaning that there would still really be no spread of, of STDs because he would still have to stick to those 12 wives specifically who, at least in theory, were all virgins when they married him. So if we all follow what's biblical, life would be better for everyone. So if it's biblical, I, where, where, you tell me where, where else that would come from. If, if. And look, I mean, if, if we look at sort of the overlapping circles of where our ethics would agree, and these are the most important ethics, I believe, the non-initiation of force and the keeping of your contracts, keeping of your word. If people just didn't initiate force and kept their word, we would live in a complete paradise. I mean, like the world would be incomprehensibly fantastic and wonderful in ways that we can barely even conceive of at the moment. And so I'd sort of like to to, to wind up the conversation, Gary, just on the things that we agree on because the the where we are the same on ethics the metaphysics and epistemology i don't even want to disturb that in a way because i think that you and i want to continue to um challenge the people who are covering up crimes by pretending that evil is good by pretending that the initiation of force is somehow moral so i'd sort of rather go arm in arm into okay. the world and say okay and i hate to use this phrase agree to disagree but in this case given how passionately we both have the same ethical system and how passionately we both want to spread that moral system to the world as a whole that so often seems to fall astray from it i would rather focus on that the differences that we have in metaphysics and epistemology to me uh, is not nearly as relevant uh, in in a sense and i've made this case before i would rather get the right diagnosis from a doctor looking up the wrong thing than get the wrong diagnosis from a doctor looking up the right thing and so i think that we both have 
powerful cures for what ails the world. And I think that we could find great um, brotherhood and companionship uh, in bringing those ethics to the world. And that's kind of where I'd like to uh, end up in the conversation on. And also just to tell you that I really love that kind of workout. So I, I know we were batting back and forth quite a bit, but you know, we play tennis hard and we shake hands. Absolutely. It, it was, it was a pleasure, a pleasure. I know I got a little passionate sometimes and we talked over each other sometimes. And I want to let you know that this was the best conversation I've ever, and I've had this debate um, with, with probably 50 atheists. As you know, there are a ton of atheists in the libertarian community. I've had this conversation you know, probably 50 times, and I've definitely enjoyed this one the most, and I'm going to look into that uh, information about the sociopath as well. I appreciate it. And, I mean, for those who want to, I mean, I didn't get to break out the full round of arguments uh, because it's, you know, it's a conversation, not a uh, a monologue, but uh, I've got a free book at freedomainradio.com slash free, freedomainradio.com slash free which is called Against the Gods with a question mark. Uh, and I go into more detail about these arguments and I look forward to people's feedback. And uh, Gary, um, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for the conversation. Thank you everyone so much for bringing the glory of philosophy to me, <clears throat> to the other listeners to the world as a whole. We're talking 15 million views and uh, downloads. And please look for the shocking admission from Mike coming up in the next day or two. It's already out in the podcast feed, but by God, it's going to be on YouTube as well, because he cannot get away with saying these kinds of things on this show without you getting your two cents in. Uh, so uh, please go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Please use the affiliate link. Hugely helpful for us. Costs you nothing and gives a few pennies our way. That's FDRURL dot com slash amazon and of course fdrpodcast.com to share the shows thanks everyone so much look forward to your support thank you for a great month we'll talk to you soon